I had that on. Thank you very much. Um, good afternoon. Our business today is to consider two items. The first I'll discuss is H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act of 2023. Situation on our southern border can be described with one word, chaos. It's a national security and humanitarian crisis of unprecedented proportions. The present state of affairs cannot stand. For more than two years, we've watched as operational control of our border has been lost to reckless policy decisions. Uh, the Democrats' open border agenda started with halting the border wall construction. That was followed by the reinstatement of catch and release, termination of remain in Mexico, and measures that tied the hands of law enforcement. Under President Biden, we've experienced some of the largest waves of illegal border crossings in recorded history exceeding 1.7 million in 2021, 2.3 million in 2022, and 1.2 million so far in 2023, according to the CBP's uh, own numbers. These numbers only scratch the surface of the grim realities uh, that we face. A porous border is anything but kind or compassionate. It has empowered drug cartels and human traffickers. It's allowed fentanyl and illicit drugs to flow into our communities, and it's become a path utilized by terror suspects to try and sneak into our homeland. This broken system is endangering lives and U.S. security. Enough is enough. It's time for Congress to act and begin to repair the damage done by the radical posturing and inaction of the Biden administration. Unlike the previous majority, House Republicans are committed to prioritizing the needs of the American people over the wish lists of extreme open-door activists. In this very room over the past four years, House Republicans pleaded with the administration and House Democrats to finally acknowledge the humanitarian and security crisis at the border. Time and again, they denied or downplayed it. The facts speak for themselves. The tragedy and horror are too significant for even open-border advocates to dismiss. Today, House Republicans are taking action to secure our border and stop the surge of illegal immigration through consideration of H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act of 2023. This bill is a complete rejection of President Biden's border policies and purposeful inaction. It includes important reforms to combat fraud and abuse in the asylum process, prevents the catch and release of aliens into, the, into American communities, and establishes new penalties for visa overstays. H.R. 2 also provides the resources and direction necessary to secure the border once and for all. It immediately resumes construction of the border wall, which President Biden unilaterally halted on his first day in office, and adds more physical barriers and tactical infrastructure along the border. Importantly, this bill gives our dedicated border patrol agents the resources, equipment, and manpower to meet their mission and gain operational control. Together, these measures will go a long way to secure our southern border and end the reign of terror that cartels are perpetrating against vulnerable populations. We have a constitutional obligation to secure our border and keep Americans safe. H.R. 2 will help us uphold that commitment. Our second measure for today is H.R. 1163, the Protecting Taxpayers and Victims of Unemployment Fraud Act. At the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Congress passed uh, or acted to expand unemployment insurance benefits to ensure that millions of Americans who were suddenly thrown out of work or were furloughed could continue to support themselves. 872, eight, excuse me, $878 billion, both federal and state, 
was spent on unemployment benefits during the pandemic. Unfortunately, with spending that large, fraud inevitably followed. While it is unclear how much of that $872 billion was fraudulently paid out, estimates range from as low as $60 billion to as high as $400 billion. H.R. 1163 will allow states to recover fraudulent overpayments of federal and state pandemic unemployment compensation and, as an incentive, allow states to keep 25 percent of what they recover. It's essential that Congress take steps to ensure that fraudulent overpayments are recovered. Hardworking American taxpayers expect that the government will be good stewards of every tax dollar. And those who have fraudulently obtained funds from the unemployment insurance program through criminal activity must not profit from their bad deeds. One final point. I know my friends on the other side of the aisle have expressed concerns that H.R. 1163 will lead to a wave of states going uh, after otherwise innocent individuals who inadvertently received more than they should. States have the ability to use case-by-case -case individual waivers to grant relief to innocent individuals who may have accidentally received more than they should have for this exact reason. What we are concerned with today is fraud and with targeting those specific bad actors who have damaged the program integrity uh, of the unemployment insurance system. It's uh, those criminals and fraudsters at whom H.R. 1163 is aimed. I now yield to my good friend, our distinguished ranking member, Mr. McGovern, for any remarks he wishes to make. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, eight more innocent lives were lost Saturday during a mass shooting, uh, this time at a mall in Allen, Texas. And while my heart goes out to the Allen community and the victims' families, I'm sickened that uh, all we seem capable of doing is offering our thoughts and prayers uh, and nothing else. Uh, when will things get bad enough that we will do something to keep our children from being shot at school, at grocery stores, at parades, at movie theaters, at malls? It's beyond time that we take action to protect Americans from gun violence. Um, and I just I say that because I plead with uh, the majority to allow us to bring measures to the floor uh, so we can debate and we can vote on ways to protect our kids uh, and innocent people. Uh, and um, anyway, uh, that said, uh, today we are here to consider two measures. First is H.R. 2, uh, what might as well be called the Child Deportation Act. Frankly, this is the worst immigration and border security bill introduced in my lifetime. Republicans would rather resort to more fear-mongering, more conspiracy theories, more political stunts, than offer real solutions to fix our broken immigration system. We will get into, we will, we will get into greater detail about all of H.R. 2's troubling provisions later, but let me highlight a few for now. First, this bill demonizes asylum seekers looking to enter the country legally. These folks are fleeing their homes, everything they know, because of a well-founded fear of persecution. They are traveling thousands of miles, often on foot. They are looking to legally declare asylum. Under U.S. law, they have a legal right to do that. This bill destroys the basic tenets of our nation's asylum system, preventing Customs and Border Protection from fairly and efficiently processing asylum seekers and causing more chaos at the border. Partnerships between the federal government and nonprofits are essential to meet the basic human needs of migrants. 
This bill discourages the critical work of these humanitarian organizations that help provide food, clothes, and shelter to families seeking asylum. Maybe my spiritual friends across the aisle need to be reminded, and I quote, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Matthew chapter 25, verse 35. Keeping assistance from innocent people seeking refuge is immoral and absolutely cruel. H.R. 2 also strips protections for unaccompanied minors who arrive at the border. Now, we're talking about allowing kids to be detained for a month or more, limiting their access to counsel, and sending them right back into the hands of smugglers that will exploit them. This is unconscionable. Second, this bill does nothing, and I mean nothing, to pre prevent more drugs from entering the country. Ninety percent of all drug seizures occur at our ports, ports of entry. Cartels aren't smuggling drugs in on mothers and children arriving at our border on foot seeking asylum. They are smuggling drugs in at our airports and in cars and in trucks at legal points of entry. You would think that if Republicans were interested in really tackling the drug crisis, they would enhance CBP's ability to seize drugs at these ports of entry, right? Wrong. Their debt limit bill would cut CBP's budget by $4 billion, weakening their ability to prevent drugs from crossing the border by laying off 2,400 officers. If the GOP's debt limit plan is enacted, estimates suggest that uh, more than 350,000 grams of fentanyl could be led into the country. That's over 200 million more fatal doses of fentanyl hitting our streets thanks to Republicans' funding cuts. But they want to go after moms and kids declaring asylum. Do you know what H.R. 2 does fund? It funds Trump's border wall. As I say time and time again, show me a 30-foot wall and I'll show you a 35-foot ladder. Third, this bill will wreak absolute havoc on our economy. H.R. 2 imposes nationwide E-Verify on all U.S. businesses, doing untold damage to the economy and resulting in billions of dollars in lost revenue. This bill could wipe out half of our nation's agricultural workforce. I have farms in my district, as I'm sure many of you here do, too. Let me be clear. American farms will go under if this bill becomes law. And the price of food in our grocery stores and on our shelves will skyrocket even more. We all know that our immigration system needs reform, but this bill is not it. H.R. 2 is inhumane. It is un-American. It does nothing to prevent the very real issue of drug smuggling and will do irrepar irreparable damage to our economy. We also have H.R. 1163, House Republicans' Unemployment Insurance so-called anti-fraud bill. Like H.R. 2, this bill would do more harm than good. It advocates for surprise billing for workers who did nothing wrong while slashing funding from programs that hold actual scammers accountable. So I'm sure, today, I'm sure today's meeting will be another lengthy one. I'm reading on social media that uh, the Republicans are scrambling for votes on their uh, immigration bill, so God knows when we'll report it out of, this uh, of the Rules Committee. But in any event, um, uh, Mr. Chairman, I will at this point yield back my time. Thank you very much. Without objection, any prepared statements that our witnesses uh, may have will be included in the record. I'd like to welcome our first panel, Chairman Jordan and Ranking Member Nadler from the Judiciary Committee, Chairman Green and Representative Ivey from the Homeland Security Committee, 
and Chairman McCall and Representative Castro from the Foreign Affairs Committee. Chairman Jordan, I welcome you back to the Rules Committee, and I welcome your testimony. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, uh, good to be with you and, and committee members. Uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris, Secretary Mayorkas, all, and the vast majority of Democrats in Congress keep telling us there is no border crisis. But numbers don't lie. And I know we get tired of hearing the numbers, but they do not lie. Since President Biden took office, there have been over 5 million illegal border crossers encountered by U.S. Customs and Border Protection along the southwest border. 5 million. Over 1.5 million illegal alien gotaways who successfully evaded capture in the 28 months that Joe Biden's been president, and nearly 2 million other illegal aliens released into the United States. Over 370,000 unaccompanied alien children, children, encountered on our southwest border and placed with Health and Human Services, and at least, and this is, this is unbelievable, and, and frankly, in response to the ranking member's comment, at least 85,000 of those kids have been lost by the Biden administration. We don't know where they're at. We don't know what bad things may be happening to kids. Nearly 200 alien terrorists encountered by the Border Patrol along the southwest border. And as we sit here today, the surges surrounding the end of Title 42 have already started. We've all seen it. Border Patrol Chief Ortiz reported that his agents encountered over 20, think about this, 26,000 aliens illegally crossing the border in 72 hours this past weekend, just over this past weekend, a 72-hour time frame. Last week, there were 55,000 illegal alien encounters, nearly 8,000 a day, and there is no end in sight. In fact, I would argue after Thursday, it will only get worse. According to the Border Patrol intelligence sources, around 700,000 migrants are waiting in Mexican shelters to come to the United States when Title, II, uh, Title 42 expires in two days. They will overrun our Border Patrol agents, they will overwhelm our resources, and they will overload our cities. By some estimates, 400 Panama's Darien Gap making their way up to our border this year, all because President Biden has effectively invited them in. This week, House Republicans will pass H.R. 2, the Secure Border Act, and make good on our promise to pass legislation to secure the border and protect our sovereignty. The Judiciary Committee's provisions of H.R. 2 stop the incentives to come to the United States. Title I of Division B reforms the asylum system to stop asylum fraud and abuse and, and to ensure that valid asylum claims are heard expeditiously. Specifically, the bill includes bars to criminals applying for asylum, requires that the alien claim fear at a port of entry, increases the credible fear standard, reigns in immigration and federal courts abuse of asylum grounds like particular social group. Title II ends the Biden administration catch and release policies, clarifies that the DHS secretary must remove or detain illegal aliens who arrive at the border or place them into a remain in Mexico type program. This is the heart of the legislation. I just want to be clear, Mr. Chairman. People can come to ports of entry claim asylum. God bless them for doing it. If it's legit, we're going to let them in. We want that adjudication to happen as quick, happen as, quick as possible. But we're not just going to release them into the country. They will be detained or they will have to wait in Mexico while we evaluate their claim. That is the most important thing, I think, in the legislation. There are no other uh, options. The aliens cannot be paroled or otherwise released in the United States, as I just said, unless an immigration court grants the alien asylum or some other immigration benefit. It also allows the DHS, uh, DHS secretary to suspend entry of aliens at the border to gain operational control. Title IV closes the Flores Settlement Agreement loophole that has for many years encouraged family units to cross the border illegally. 
It ensures that all aliens will be detained for the pendency of their immigration court proceedings and kept together as a family. The number of real and fake family units crossing the border has skyrocketed over the last decade because aliens know that if they have a child with them, they will be, they will be released once they get to the United States. Title V helps end the mass exploitation and migration of unaccompanied alien children. It requires that current law regarding unaccompanied alien children from Mexico and Canada be applied to children from other countries. This means that UACs, kids from non-contiguous countries, will be screened for trafficking, this is important, or for a fear of return, and if none is found, they will be sent home, reunited with their family in their home country. We've all heard of the horror stories of what these UACs go through during their trip to the United States with smugglers. We all know how they can be exploited once here. The Biden administration, as I said earlier, cannot locate at least 85,000 of the 370,000 unaccompanied alien children who have entered this United States since Joe Biden took office. In 2014, the Obama administration asked Congress to pass a law to give the administration the ability to remove UACs. What we're doing in this bill, the Obama administration asked for that. In response, the House passed the language that is in, currently in this bill. Unfortunately, the Senate did not take up that bill and the UAC surges have continued. I think, I think this element is critical too, dealing with these, these kids. And our, our ranking member, Mr. Chairman, talks about when a kid, a kid winds up on your doorstep, you're gonna, first thing you're gonna do is figure out where those kids' parents are, get that child back with their mom and dad. That's what our legislation seeks to do. Title VI puts visa overstay on par with illegal entry as a misdemeanor crime. It is currently just a civil immigration infraction. Title VII will help end the abuse of immigration parole. Since President Biden took office as part of a catch and release, he has paroled in around uh, a million aliens who illegally crossed the border. The parole statute is very clear. It is to be used on a case-by-case -case basis and only for significant public benefit or a humanitarian purpose. Administrations have been abusing parole authority for many years despite Congress attempts to rein it in. Most recently, the Biden administration has created categorical parole programs for nationals of several countries to make the chaos at the border less noticeable. Um, Title VII brings the use of immigration parole back to its intended purpose to allow a foreign national to enter the U.S. for an emergency purpose for a short period of time. And finally, Title VIII helps in the jobs magnet for illegal migration. It phases in the required use of E-Verify to check the employment eligibility of new hires over a period of three years, starting with the largest employers and ending with agricultural employers. Um, we have worked closely with many of our folks from the big ag districts on, on that language. E-Verify is a quick and efficient way to electronically do what current law requires of employers to check the employment eligibility of their new hires. The current system is subjective and illegal. Illegal aliens routinely fake identity employment eligibility documents to get jobs in the United States. Um, Title VIII also repeals two Biden administration regulations that make the H-2A agricultural guest worker program burdensome for employees to use. H.R. 2 will put an end to it, um, the open borders policy of Joe Biden. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you very much. Ranking Member Nadler, you're recognized for your opening testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. Today, the majority has brought forward a cruel, extreme, and unworkable piece of legislation, the so-called Secure the Border Act, which would wreck our economy, destroy the asylum system, criminalize visa overstays, send unaccompanied children back to dangerous situations, and jail children indefinitely. Once again, my Republican colleagues show us that they are not interested in finding real solutions to tough issues. This bill attempts to combine a variety of different bills, each one more cruel and heartless than the last, into one contradictory and overlapping mess. This bill has no chance of being enacted into law, 
Republican senators have expressed their opposition. It is nothing more than pure political theater. My Republican colleagues are trying to take us back to the failed, illegal, and immoral policies of the Trump administration. Former President Trump's radical, inhumane, and racist immigration actions weakened the U.S. economy, undermined our moral standing in the world, and did not make us any safer. While trampling on some of our most deeply held American values, his erratic approach also failed to stem the flow of migrants across our border. Let's be very clear about what this legislation would do. When taken together, this bill serves as a wholesale ban on asylum. No one would be able to seek asylum in the United States if they crossed between points of entry or if they had or could have had even temporary status in a third country. We offered a variety of amendments to exempt the most vulnerable from some of these draconian requirements. This included those fleeing communist and totalitarian regimes and unaccompanied children. The majority was not even willing to exempt children under a year old. The one place where we were, where we were able to make some bipartisan headway was on the issue of E-Verify. E-Verify is an electronic employment eligibility verification system that began as a voluntary pilot program and is currently used by a small percentage of the nation's employers. This bill would make that system mandatory for all employers in the United States without providing other reforms, including any meaningful opportunity for undocumented workers to regularize their status. This title would damage the U.S. economy, harm American workers, and result in billions of dollars in lost government uh, revenue. Mandatory E-Verify would decimate the agriculture industry, putting U.S. farms out of business, shipping millions of American jobs overseas, and increasing U.S. reliance on imported food. Mandatory E-Verify will result in hundreds of thousands of unfilled farm jobs and will leave unpicked crops rotting in the fields, as we saw in Georgia in 2011, when a mandatory E-Verify law in the state resulted in over 11,000 farm jobs going unfilled during the peak harvest season. That is why I have submitted an amendment to the Rules Committee which, which would strike the E-Verify title from this bill. This amendment gained bipartisan support in the Judiciary Committee, and I hope my colleagues will ensure it gets a vote on the House floor. These are just a few of the problems with this bill. I did not even have time to go into detail into how this bill strips all protections from unaccompanied children and requires all families who come to our border seeking protection to be detained indefinitely, or the extreme lengths to which it goes to narrow the eligibility grounds for asylum or how this bill would severely restrict this and any future administration's ability to parole individuals into the United States, ending the current parole initiatives for Ukrainians fleeing Russia and certain military families. And I might add, ending the parole that has been enforced for Cuba since the Eisenhower administration. Immigration reform is a complicated problem that requires comprehensive solutions and an enforcement-only strategy simply doesn't work. Democrats have put forward real proposals, and we stand ready to work with serious Republicans to pass meaningful solutions. Democrats take this complex humanitarian crisis seriously. Our proposals address the root causes of migration, improve border security, 
and create additional legal pathways for people to enter the United States lawfully. But Republicans have chosen a narrow path that imposes extreme pain and hardship on the most vulnerable people while doing nothing to actually solve the problem. I encourage my colleagues to oppose this wrongheaded bill. They ask the majority to go back to the drawing board. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Thank you. Uh, Chairman Green, you're recognized for your opening testimony. Chairman Cole, Ranking Member McGovern, and members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify on H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act of 2023. There is now absolutely no doubt to any American paying attention that we're in the midst of a severe border crisis. In just over two years, President Biden and Secretary Marcus have turned the border into a place of chaos and devastation, a place where cartels are now firmly in control of at least five of our nine sectors, according to the chief of the Border Patrol. Since the Biden administration took office, there have been over 5 million encounters at the southwest border, 1.5 million known gotaways, and estimates by the chief of Border Patrol of an additional 20% of gotaways that are completely unaccounted for. The numbers paint a horrifying picture. But if you look deeper, it gets worse. In just the first six months of this fiscal year, 80 people on the terrorist watch list were stopped by trying to cross the U.S.-Mexican border between ports of entry. Border Patrol arrested over 15,000 individuals with criminal convictions, and 14,000 pounds of fentanyl has been seized, enough to kill over 3.1 billion people, a third of the world, or the entire U.S. population nine times over. Sadly, the true number of cartel and gang members, other criminals and trafficked persons, as well as the quantity of illicit drugs that have all crossed our borders will never be fully known. But what we do know is staggering. Given these facts, it's imperative that Congress take the necessary steps to ensure that the laws passed by this body are enforced. Our borders are secure and the American people are safe. I'm honored to be here with Chairman Jordan and Chairman McCall as we work toward this goal, the Secure the Border Act. Each of our committees has worked tirelessly over the past several months to craft this legislation, doing so through regular order. The Committee on Homeland Security's markup two weeks ago extended over 16 hours, considered over 40 amendments, and I'm grateful to the members of the committee who worked tirelessly to craft our part of this bill. H.R. 2 addresses the immediate impact of the crisis by focusing on mitigating and stopping the surge of illegal aliens and drugs flowing across the U.S. borders, mainly between ports of entry. This bill requires the Secretary of Homeland Security to use previously appropriated but unexpired funding to immediately resume construction of the border wall. It also marks, makes targeted investment in border technology by deploying the most effective technology available, such as advanced surveillance sensors and drones, and requires a five-year technology investment plan to provide an analysis of security risks and capability gaps at and between ports of entry. This bill also demands transparency from DHS by requiring monthly reporting of critical border security data, including the number of known gotaways and known or suspected terrorists. The American people expect this type of transparency. It also authorizes and increases Operation Stone Garden grants to support state and local law enforcement who are bearing the brunt of this crisis as the federal government continues to fail in its mission. Lastly, the bill addresses the major staffing challenges at U.S. Border Patrol, which was just recently highlighted in a DHS Inspector General report laying out how the unsustainable conditions at our southwest border are negatively impacting the health and morale of the frontline law enforcement. 
Our brave Border Patrol agents whose frustrations grow daily as they are pulled off the front line to act as processing coordinators are leaving at an increasing rate and are greatly struggling with mental health issues. To address these issues, this bill includes retention bonuses for those frontline agents, mandates no fewer than 22,000 full-time equivalent agents, and also provides polygraph waiver authority for hiring flexibility. There, these are just a few of the highlights of this critical legislation. We must have effective physical infrastructure, additional Border Patrol agents on the front lines to address these growing threats. Combined with the important elements led by the Judiciary and Foreign Affairs Committee, this bill is a major step in tackling these challenges and delivering for the American people. Left unaddressed, the border crisis will continue to spiral out of control. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the opportunity to testify today. I look forward to the committee's questions, and I yield back. Thank you very much. Representative Ivey, you're recognized for your opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member. I'm here to express my strong opposition to H.R. 2 and urge the committee to approve a rule to allow for consideration of Democratic amendments aimed at addressing serious flaws in this cruel and unworkable bill. Uh, although I sit on the Homeland Security Committee and the Judiciary Committee, I'm here to speak on behalf of Ranking Member Thompson about Division A of H.R. 2. The language in this division, uh, which was voted out of the Homeland Security Committee about two weeks ago along partisans' lines after a 17-hour markup, uh, reflects a failure of cooperation and coordination between the two uh, groups of, of members, the Democrats and the Republicans. The majority rejected 43 Democratic amendments, even when they expressly recognized the merit in uh, some of the amendments that were offered by the Democrats at the time. Uh, if enacted, H.R. 2 would upend border enforcement operations, villainize community and religious organizations uh, working to provide migrants with basic necessities. Uh, that's why 136 community and religious organizations oppose this legislation. They have a letter that I would like to uh, submit to uh, make it part of the record. H.R. Uh, 2 would require DHS to build Donald Trump's border wall and vaguely points to unspent border wall funds from the Trump era as a pay for. My Republican colleagues identified no unspent funds, as mentioned in the bill, that are available to DHS to begin construction on the wall. And the legislation requires them to begin work on this in seven days after enactment. Uh, moreover, uh, roughly 1,950 miles of additional wall construction uh, is estimated to be required to complete the Republican mandate. I've seen estimates of that costing roughly $46 million per mile. Uh, so on the one hand, we have no funding that made available under the legislation, not, not expressly at least, but an astronomical amount to actually do what they're saying should be done. In addition to that, House Republicans just adopted a bill to require 22% across the board cut to DH, DHS funding. I think the ranking member estimated that would be somewhere around a reduction of 2,400 border agents. At the same time, my Republican colleagues are saying, oh, and the border agents and officers themselves are saying, they need more help down at the border. Um, but the bill doesn't fund a single new officer in a port of entry to bolster fentanyl interdiction, even though successive administrations have acknowledged that more than 90% of this deadly drug come through ports of entry. Last month, I joined with committee colleagues to visit with officers in Brownsville Point of Entry in McAllen, Texas. The men and women serving at the border are doing important work under very difficult conditions. That led us, uh, Ranking Member Thompson in particular, to offer amendments to try and address 
uh, additional funding for members of the, uh, of, of the border, uh, officers and agents, to try and raise the funding to have them get additional payments. I know there was a language in there about adding for bonuses. This would actually elevate their overall pay on an ongoing basis uh, and allow them to, to equalize with civil service payment. Uh, in addition to that, uh, uh, we also offered a language that would allow the uh, officers and agents to unionize so that they could protect their benefits. And we also offered language uh, that would, I think it was uh, raised a moment ago about uh, the spiritual issues and challenges that many of the agents and officers are facing on the border. We offered an amendment to expand that to provide additional counseling, which was suggested by the officers and agents we talked with down at the border. But that, that amendment was rejected as well. Uh, we debated a section that targets nonprofits that work with migrants and other immigrants for hours, but in the end, the Republicans retained language that punishes these community religious and charitable organizations for carrying out their missions of providing life-saving services to those in need. Specifically, Section 115 would place unworkable requirements on DHS partners, including those who don't operate at the border. The broadness of the provision would mean that FEMA's disaster management partners would be required to verify every individual's immigration status before providing critical assistance like shelter or transportation. Uh, in addition to that, at the hearing, uh, one of our members raised the issue of the requirements that they would face in trying to identify uh, uh, the, the definition of aliens that was put into a new amendment that was offered the night of the uh, markup, which had never been seen by any of the NGOs or had any chance to be vetted by anybody else. Uh, and it's pretty clear, I think we've got the letter that I just offered, and we have another one from uh, Catholic bishops in El Paso uh, and Texas that raise the same concerns about this provision. Uh, this, uh, in, in, a member to, uh, uh, in a letter to members of Congress, Bishop Mark Seitz, the Bishop of El Paso and chairman of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops uh, on Migration wrote, quote, as drafted, these provisions give, could even be interpreted to prevent schools, houses of worship, and other organizations from qualifying for the nonprofit security grant program amid a rise in violent attacks on those places. The bishop continued, quote, DHS's ability to rescue persons encountered in the desert in life-threatening circumstances and process unaccompanied children, victims of trafficking, victims of torture, and others who, even under this bill's own terms, would warrant such processing would be compromised. Uh, Democrats tried to strike Section 115 altogether, but committee Republicans refused to do so. Alternatively, we offered language uh, that would have created other exceptions to this uh, for Afghans who helped our military personnel overseas, for pregnant women, women who were survivors of human trafficking or domestic violence or sexual assault. All of those amendments were voted down. We, needed a, we need an open bill or an open rule to address the very real problems with this bill that we were not able to address at the committee level. Uh, and with that, I yield back. Thank you very much. Representative McCall, you're recognized for your opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, a ranking member. Um, you know, throughout my career as a federal prosecutor in the state of Texas, uh, chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, now chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, I've never seen this border more out of control. And my home state of Texas is taking the brunt of this crisis. 
In fact, Chief Border Patrol Officer Ortiz testified that we no longer have operational control of the border. This didn't have to happen. And I would argue it's a self-inflicted wound. The reason for this chaos is a direct result of the Biden administration's termination on day one of two of the most effective policies implemented during the previous administration. And that is the migrant protection protocols and asylum cooperative agreements. In fact, don't take my word for it. The Border Patrol tells you that's this, that the rescission of these policies on day one had a direct cause and effect on the chaos that we're now seeing. And these policies worked because they required migrants to remain in Mexico pending their asylum claims instead of being released into the United States. Now we're back to the policy of catch and release. It also prohibited migrants from eligibility for U.S. asylum if they pass through any countries with these asylum agreements. But since the Biden administration took office, migrant encounters have soared to 5 million. Fentanyl's flowing across the border has killed over 100,000 Americans, many of them young people. My son just went to a funeral one of his best friends last week, and my daughter's been to four. My committee's contribution to the House GOP border package will reinstate and codify the migrant protection protocols known as Remain in Mexico. And it will also direct the Secretary of State to re-enter MPP and ACAs to bring back order to our immigration system and protect Americans. For without acting, we were silently enabling the human smugglers, sex traffickers, and drug cartels, all while leaving our Border Patrol's agent, agents at continued risk. By the way, the suicide rate's never been higher than it is today. This should not be a partisan issue to give our government the tools they need to stem this generational crisis and restore U.S. operation control to the border. And I want to commend Chairman Jordan Chairman Green, for their hard work on this. This will be the strongest border security bill ever passed by the United States House of Representatives if we pass this on Thursday, which, by the way, Title 42 will be revoked on Thursday. No doubt the flood at the border will only get worse, not better. That, with that, I yield back. Thank you very much. Representative Castro, you're recognized for your opening statement. Uh, thank you, Chairman Cole, Ranking Member McGovern, and members of the Rules Committee. And Thank you for the opportunity to testify in opposition specifically to Title II of H.R. 2, Title III, I'm sorry, of H.R. 2, which was marked up in the House Foreign Affairs Committee as H.R. 1690, the Order Act. I'm glad to, glad to join you in my capacity as ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere. Last year marked 100 years since my grandmother, Victoria Castro, came to the United States as a young orphan in the wake of the Mexican Revolution. On her paperwork, the San Antonio relatives who took her in wrote that she was coming to live. In America, she found a better life, just as many of your ancestors did, the Irish, the Germans, the English, the Spanish, immigrants with descendants in this room today. And today, we face different challenges with migration, and I don't think there's a single person in this room who believes that our current immigration system meets our country's needs. But instead of tackling these challenges head on, Title III of this bill would institute destructive, dangerous policies that force vulnerable asylum seekers into even more desperate circumstances. When similar protocols were previously in place, human rights observers 
recorded thousands of violent attacks against migrants sent to Mexico, including kidnapping, rape, and other very brutal crimes. That so-called Remain in Mexico policy, as cruel as it was, included exemptions for unaccompanied minors, children, and people who don't speak Spanish. This bill includes neither of those exemptions. If HR2 becomes law, asylum seekers from across the world would be required to first apply for asylum in Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, or El Salvador, countries that combined have less than 1 20th of the US GDP. And let's be honest, many people in this room won't even drink the water when they go to these countries. Some advocates for the bill have described this as, quote, burden sharing. But the countries named in this bill cannot shoulder the same burden as the world's largest economy, our nation, nor should they be expected to. When we talk about immigration policy, I think folks often lose sight of the real people that our discussions affect. Last month in the House Foreign Affairs Committee, I introduced an amendment to exempt people with disabilities, persecuted religious minorities, and even Ukrainian refugees from this bill. But every single member of the Republican majority voted it down. Under HR2 as drafted, for example, if a Uyghur Muslim escapes one of China's concentration camps in Xinjiang and makes it to Mexico and seeks asylum in the United States, the United States would force that person to remain in Mexico. If a group of Cuban dissidents sail to Florida and land outside of a port of entry, they would not be allowed to apply for asylum. Under this bill, Ukrainians fleeing Russia's brutal invasion of their homeland, Catholics fleeing religious persecution in Nicaragua, and Christians or other religious minorities fleeing Iran would all be required to remain in Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, or El Salvador, rather than unite with family right here in the United States. Many of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle have expressed concerns about how our immigration system will be able to handle a rising tide and a rising number of immigrants post-Title 42. And I agree that we need to build a more resilient and more efficient and effective system. But what we've seen time and time again is that cruel, restrictive policies like Title 42 and Remain in Mexico do not stop desperate people from fleeing persecution, oppression, and violence. This bill, sadly, is a way to get rid of a problem without solving it. And that's the best that we could hope to accomplish by passing this piece of legislation. Instead, it forces vulnerable people to take dangerous, irregular paths to the United States, the exact kind of journey that led to the deaths of 53 people in the back of a sweltering tractor trailer in my hometown of San Antonio <coughs> last summer. HR2 also ends humanitarian parole, except in very limited circumstances. Since the February 20, 2022 in Russian invasion of Ukraine, the United States, for example, has admitted 150,000 Ukrainians and their family members on humanitarian parole. If we pass HR2, these families fleeing Putin's invasion would lose the ability to be in the United States. Let me say that again. They would lose the ability to be in the United States. The Afghans who fought alongside the United States and were evacuated from Kabul 
in August 2021 are largely in the United States through humanitarian parole. If we pass HR2, they would lose the ability to remain in the United States. In February of this year, the United States evacuated 222 brave Nicaraguans who were imprisoned by the Ortega Murillo regime. They are here with their families on parole. And two of these individuals testified to the House Foreign Affairs Committee in March. They too would lose their status. Mr. Chairman, there are meaningful bipartisan solutions to address the causes of forced migration to the United States. And I've been proud to work across the aisle to introduce several bills that would expand the scope of U.S. foreign assistance to encourage sustainable economic development in many of these countries that we're talking about today. Unfortunately, H.R. 2 does not include any serious attempt to address the root causes of migration. And so people will keep coming. This bill is harmful and counterproductive, and it betrays our nation's legal and moral obligations to asylum seekers who deserve better and also betrays America's legacy. Before I yield, I want to make a brief point about the rhetoric used during this debate in this Congress and also in this country. In 2019, a madman in my home state of Texas drove 10 hours to El Paso, Texas, and murdered 23 people, including American citizens, to stop what he called the Hispanic, quote, invasion. When members of Congress use their elevated platforms to dehumanize migrants and fearmonger about, quote, unquote, illegals, aliens, and invasions, their words have consequences that echo far beyond these halls. The language that we use matters. And I urge members of this committee and of this Congress to be mindful about how your rhetoric can put a target on the backs of migrants and those who may target them. Thank you for the opportunity to speak on this bill. I yield back. Thank you very much. Uh, I just have a few questions, and I'm going to direct my uh, direct them to the three chairmen we're privileged to have with us today. Uh, so, Chairman Jordan Green, recall I understand that uh, you've, all your respective committees have held hearings highlighting the causes of this unprecedented illegal immigration surge uh, on our southern border and the effects that's having uh, on border residents, border communities throughout the country. Uh, can you tell us a few of the real-life consequences your witnesses have described, and I'll start with you, Chairman Jordan. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, so I think all the committees have had parents who lost a loved one, lost a son or daughter to, uh, to fentanyl, so those, those always sink in as, you know, that's powerful testimony from a mom or a dad. Uh, but I, I think for me also was, it was when we did the field hearing in Yuma, uh, hearing from the hospital administrator and what it's meant to the hospital there, and then hearing from the farmers. Um, I mean, they, they've had E-Verify in their state. It works fine. They, they love that 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 uh, what, what they have in, in Arizona, and yet they talked about the damage done because of the, the flood of, of, of illegal migrants coming in the country, uh, what it's done to their fields, people just camping out in their fields. So I think there's real consequences for the people who produce our food. I learned an interesting fact when we were in Yuma, they said 90% of the leafy green vegetables we eat during the winter come from Yuma, Arizona. I had no idea. When we, that was one of the facts we learned when we were down there. So, it, But the most powerful ones are always the moms and dads talking about what fentanyl did to uh, a loved one and their family. Thank you very much. Chairman Green, same question to you. Can you tell us a little bit about what the witnesses appeared before your committee had to tell you about the consequences of the surge we're dealing with? 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, you know, there, there are the human costs and then there are the physical, the financial costs of this uh, open border. And of course, uh, Chairman uh, Jordan mentioned a few of the human costs, fentanyl, uh, you know, taking that a step further. Uh, Tennessee is faced with uh, having to take care of children that are born to fentanyl addicted mothers. That is a human tragedy because a child is born addicted to an opiate that child winds up in the ICU, et cetera. There are learning disabilities that are associated with that addiction from birth. Uh, so there is the human side of it, but there's also the financial side of it. It costs the state of Tennessee $1,600,000 per child, and we had 40,000 of those last year. So if you sit and think about the human costs, and then you think of all of the various financial costs of this, um, it, it is substantial. And the, the, the CEO that Chairman Jordan mentions also came and testified about his uncompensated health care costs. The fact that the human side of that is people from his own community have to go 200 miles to deliver babies because mm -hmm. his, his uh, obstetrics ward is full of, uh, of migrants. Um, and, and I know it's been implied earlier that, that, that this bill somehow uh, stops people from getting health care. It does not. Uh, we have an EMTALA law in this country that, that Every, every patient who presents himself will be taken care of. Uh, we're not undoing EMTALA in this, uh, in this legislation, so that's, uh, that's misinformation. Um, but it, there is a human cost in it. It's, it's absolute suffering. Uh, the magnet that brings them in was a change in policy and political asylum because the cartels are really smart. They know that our law has changed on day one. They can now get these, these people inside the United States and then they make this dangerous journey. I've seen horrific film, filmage of the, what the cartels do without getting into graphic detail. But then once they get into the United States, Mr. Chairman, what are we going to do with 5 million people that have no legal status in this country that have to live in the shadows? Where do the young women go? They get sex trafficked. Where do the young men go? They go to MS-13 or gangs. They become their families. There are stash houses inside the United States where 20 of these adopted children or sponsored children go to that makes no sense at all because they're being trafficked in the United States. To make things worse, I've seen 18 wheelers stuffed with bodies that have, have died in, in Mr. Castro's district that have been smuggled into the United States and they have suffocated and died because the smugglers don't give a damn about them. They just care about the money. And that's what's driving this, and it's a change in policy. And I do have to respond. I do respect my dear friend from San Antonio, Mr. Castro. However, this will, our, my bill will have no impact on someone's ability to apply for political asylum. That still remains their right. And in fact, he talks a lot about Ukrainians and Afghanistans who I have done a lot to protect. They are, are the ones already in the United States are protected. And individuals already paroled in the United States are protected, and the, our bill clearly says that. So I do want to correct the record on that. But the human suffering, uh, Mr. Chairman, and thanks for the question, um, it's, it's, it's horrific and it needs to stop. Thank you very much. Uh, once again, to our three chairmen along the same lines. Could each of you uh, talk briefly and walk us through the committee markups that resulted in the bill that we're considering today, talk about the process that uh, 
got you to your product, so to speak. And again, I'll start with you, Chairman Jordan. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. It was a, a long process uh, with lots of amendments offered. Um, some some things we had to work with our own members on on uh, some clarifying language that has been not only done in the committee but also in in, in conjunction with uh, members not on the judiciary committee and we've worked closely and I, I want to commend the other the other committees as well we're closely with Mr. Green and Mr. McCall so it was a long process but we pushed through it and I think you said this in your opening statement I appreciate it I do think it's the strongest immigration enforcement legislation that we've ever put together. And I hope, in fact, it passes on Thursday, which I think it will. Thank you very much. Chairman Green, same question. Talk to us a little bit about the process that got you to uh, your portion of the bill. Thank you, Chairman Cole. We, uh, as soon as I got the opportunity to lead the committee, I began meeting with the members and really uh, folks across the entire conference uh, and assembled the ideas, put the language together, uh, rebuilt that language a couple of diff different times. Um, the actual markup itself was, as I mentioned earlier, 16 hours. Uh, it was lengthy. We had a lot of amendments brought forward. Um, I will say that uh, to uh, Mr. Ivey's point earlier, some of those amendments have some hope, but they need work, and we intend to work with the, our colleagues across the aisle to develop some of those ideas, and, and, and we will have a bipartisan uh, uh, hearing to address those uh, issues that were brought up. Um, but they, they weren't in... Uh, in a place where we could put them on this bill and it, it didn't fit this bill. So um, a lot of hard work, a lot of labor, a lot of uh, uh, cooperation, and uh, I think the product that we got is a good one. And I agree with Mr. Jordan. Uh, you know, our, our dialogue across committees, between committees, has been fantastic, and I appreciate his leadership and insight and mentorship. Thank you very much. And again, Mr. McCall, to you, same thing. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the process that you went through to get to your portion of the bill? Sure. We, we, we've had several hearings on this issue. Uh, we had contact with many organizations on the outside, many groups, you know, about this. We had a full day of markup. Um, you know, I've even, uh, I have to say, Mr. Chairman, I've, I've, you know, as I mentioned in my opening statement, I've gone down to the border many times. I've talked to the chief border patrol officers down there about what caused this phenomenon. And I'm trying to make this as objective as I can. They're not Republican or Democrat down there. They say the direct cause and effect was a rescission of the migrant protection protocols mm -hmm. for Maine and Mexico. I don't think there's any dispute about that. Even the chief border patrol officer, even Secretary Mayorkas knows better, and I've had conversations with him, as well as the Secretary of State, Blinken, who knows that when we have these policies in place that take the magnet away, that this policy does work. I think because it was enacted under the previous administration and it had Trump's name attached to it, they didn't want to touch it. And it's a political move and it's a bad policy. Thank you very much. Before we proceed uh, to the next member for questions, I understand uh, advised that um, we need to switch one of our witnesses. Do any members have any questions specifically for Mr. Ivory before we do that? He may not be good, uh, Mr. Rankin. Member. So I want to give him that option. So uh, seeing none, without objection, uh, Ranking Member Thompson uh, will replace Mr. Ivy on the panel.
was a good move by Mr. Ivory. With that, uh, go to our distinguished ranking member, Mr. McGovern, for any questions he cares to offer our witnesses. Well, well thank you, Mr. Chairman. I won't, I won't take very much time. I, I just, um, you know, as I said during my opening, um, I, I think this is an awful bill. Um, that is just page after page of empty talking points with no real solutions. Um, you know, instead of actually solving problems, this bill actually creates problems. I think it, 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 it does, it, it eviscerates our asylum process. And with respect to Chairman McCall, um, the asylum part of this bill comes out of the Judiciary Committee. Um, and I don't know whether Mr. Castro wants to address that. It's, it's, I, just, I want the record to be clear what we're, we're talking about here. What's in this bill? Sure. Uh, thank you, Ranking Member. And look, I know how much hard work uh, Chairman McCall has done, for example, on getting Afghans, you know, families that had relatives over there and, and helping evacuate them and being serious about policy and so forth. But this, is, this bill was in several titles and was the work of three committees. So when I was referring to the bill, I was referring specifically to the fact that Title II limits asylum and Title VII limits parole, uh, both outside of what we did in foreign affairs. Uh, so that is something that has to be resolved, I think, with this piece of legislation because perhaps there is some internal conflict among those titles. Thank you, and, and you know, and uh, you know, and, and, and as I said before, this bill won't stop drugs from getting into uh, America because uh, drugs like fentanyl are coming through legal po points of entry, uh, not via uh, migrant uh, seeking migrants seeking asylum. Uh, and again, I just I can't resist uh, from pointing out that uh, in the debt ceiling bill that uh, my friends all voted for. A couple of weeks ago, um, it would cut the CBP's budget by four billion dollars. You know, I mean, weakening the ability to prevent drugs from crossing the border uh, by laying off 2,400 officers. I mean, I, uh, you know, and uh, you know, if the, if this plan were enacted, there were estimates that more than 350,000 grams of fentanyl could be led into this country. That's over 200 million more fatal doses of fentanyl hitting our street streets. Uh, thanks to these cuts that my friends voted for, if in fact uh, they move forward. Um, half or more of the undocumented people uh, are overstaying their visas, not crossing at the southern border. Um, and some to try to score political points, which I hear over and over and over again in some of the testimony here today, uh, by demonizing immigrants. And I want to emphasize the point that Mr. Castro made, that uh, language has consequences. Um, and uh, we see the impacts of that language and those consequences every every day, and it's quite frankly tragic, and it has to stop. But let me just get into just a, a couple of things that, you know, during the markup of the bill, uh, Democrats introduced an amendment allowing for Ukrainians to continue to be paroled into the United States until it is safe for them to go back. I mean, that's all it said. Um, so if you're from Ukraine, and your home has been destroyed thanks to Putin's war of aggression, you can stay until it's safe for you to go back. The Biden administration started a U for You program that helped save Ukrainian lives. Um, and it seems to me my Republican friends want to undo this program. So we gave Republicans an opportunity to correct the mistake, uh, to allow the administration to continue using parole for Ukrainians who are fleeing Putin's war crimes, and Republicans voted no. Uh, they voted to send them back 
into harm's way. And by the way, uh, Ukrainians don't qualify for asylum because the restrictions are so narrow. So, Mr. Jordan, let me, let me direct your attention to Section 701 of the bill, page 142, which reads, in part, the Secretary of Homeland Security may grant parole to any alien who is a national of the Republic of Cuba and is living in the Republic of Cuba. Uh, so, for some strange reason, you, you don't want to use parole for Ukrainians, but you do want to use them for Cubans who are, according to this, are exempt from all restrictions that apply to every other nationality uh, in the rest of the title. So um, it just seems kind of strange to me. Can you explain why? We just kept the Cuban Family Reunification Parole Program in place. It's been a longstanding program, so we kept that in place. Anyone else from around the world, it's a case by the law is the law. It's a case-by-case -case basis, and the administration can use that on a case-by-case -case basis. That's what we have with the legislation. So Afghanistan under the Taliban seems to, to be a worse life for people in Afghanistan than in Cuba. Um, why, aren't, why aren't they carved out for humanitarian parole? Again, or, we, or for that matter, why isn't the Afghan Adjustment Act included in this bill? Again, we, we, we stuck with what, what the law is. The, law is the, the Cuban plan has been in place for a long time. We, we kept that in place. Others, it's a, the, the law says case-by-case -case basis. We went back to that. Well, I mean, I mean, you're writing a law here. Why not, why, why not add Venezuelans? Um, or Nicaragua. We had a long debate about that. Yeah. And maybe what, maybe or, we'll debate or, it more. But or, you're or, telling or, me what's in or, the bill. Or, I'm just telling you why. Yeah. Or, or sure. No. I'm just. I mean, I, it just seems that this, this, is an, this is an example, kind of, a, of selective compassion, that you know makes one wonder why. I would argue it's adherence to the rule of law. Yeah. That's what it is. Well, you know, but Biden it, it, which, which, not which, 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 which we're treating, we're treating, um, you know, one group of nationals very differently from others, um, from countries that, quite frankly, are experiencing far worse human rights abuse, Mr. Nadler. Yeah, I was just wondering how uh, Mr. Jordan, my other Republican colleagues, would, uh, would uh, react to a uh, proposal to make things uniform by uh, uh, stopping the program for Cuba and making that an individual case-by-case -case basis as it is for Venezuela, for Ukraine, et cetera. I think we spoke on that with what we passed on the committee. Well, let me, let me, let me, yeah, well, we're here now. Right. I mean, so when we, we, I mean, we're the rules committee. We can make any amendment in order if we want to. My, 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 my fear is that my Republican friends who are chairs are are, are making uh, it clear that they want no amendments in order. But would would Mr. Jordan, you be open, or Mr. McCall, or Mr. Green, would you be open to revisiting the uh, the uh, issue with regard to the Ukrainians? I mean, there's there is an amendment. I mean, Ms. Jaya Paul offered an amendment. She's offered it again. Uh, would, would you, I, I'm not even asking you to, to support it, but would you be open to having it brought to the floor so there could be a debate and people could vote however they wanted to? If, if Mr. Nadler offered an amendment to get rid of the Cuban family reunification parole, I, I would oppose that. And if, I don't know if you're going to make well, that I, order. I asked, that was not my question. That was, uh, my question was if there's an amendment, there's no amendment that I know of right now um, uh, that's pending on the Cuban humanitarian parole, but there is one on the Ukrainian one. Uh, Ms. Jayapal has that amendment. I mean, would would you be okay? Would you be uh, you could you can oppose it, but would you be uh, open to allowing us to bring it to the floor so that we can debate it and people could vote up either way on it? Would you be uh, would you be open to that? I think if I could chip in, yeah. uh, you did, did you want me to or I, I mean, all I, of us I want all, all three. Uh, yeah. My perspective on this is that the current crisis is because we're violating the laws on how the asylum process should be working. And that's why people are pouring into the country, because they see all the exceptions that are being made. And, and 
so I think the point of this legislation that came out of the judiciary side is to just go back to the way the laws are written. But there's a difference, as you know, between asylum and humanitarian parole. And we are, and, and the, the conversation was about that you're making an ex exception for Cubans on humanitarian parole that you extend to no other nationality. Um, we have Ukrainians who are experiencing uh, the most horrific circumstances due to Putin's war crimes against them. Isn't that the whole nature of the asylum process? A person is no, being persecuted by their country no, or whatever? Uh, I mean, that's the whole point no, of the this, asylum this, process this, and the law again, to begin this, with. There's a difference between asylum and humanitarian parole. Um, asylum, you have to have a well-founded fear of persecution. Many of the Ukrainians who are here right now, who are being here under this program that the Biden administration has extended, may not necessarily fit the strict criteria of a well-founded fear of persecution. But we know, but we know that it would be dangerous to send them home. Um, there are a number of nationalities that fit into that category. Um, and so there is, a, there is a difference. That's one of the reasons why we have temporary protected status uh, for certain um, groups of immigrants, because the situation in their country is, is terrible and it is potentially dangerous, but they may not fit that criteria. So there are two things. So on the asylum stuff, as Mr. Castro pointed out, the bill that is before us um, is quite harsh. He used the example of a, a Uyghur uh, fleeing China uh, coming to our border and being forced to stay in Mexico. Um, so that's, that's one thing. But we're talking about humanitarian parole. And so all I'm asking you is would you, you don't even have to vote for it, is whether or not the Jayapal Amendment, which basically says uh, that um, the Ukrainians who are here, um, you know, can basically remain here and that this program will continue for them. That's all. I'm just, can uh, you know, I'm just, I, I'm just asking, can, can actually we bring an amendment to the floor that would do that? You could vote however you want to, and you can check with your team and staff and come up with all kinds of talking points why it's a bad idea. But I think that, you know, given the fact that we are making an exception for one group of nationals, I mean, there is a a horrific, brutal, savage war going on in Ukraine. Um, I don't know. M m does anyone want to? Uh, no, I, I, had a, I had a war crimes hearing. Yeah. And it, I, I agree with you. You and I both yeah, agree I, on this I, issue. I, um, I think HR2, though, clearly says that individuals already paroled in the United States are protected yep. in, in this bill. And I don't know how more plain language I can make it. So, what about the ones that would come? So, so, they, uh, they so, so if you're here now, yeah. then you, you're, you're okay. But, but I mean, we, that's assuming that Putin's war of aggression stops. So if you come tomorrow, you know, let's say this bill becomes law today. So you come tomorrow, you're out of luck just because, I mean, why would, why would we, why, would, why, why wouldn't we, why would we be so, why would we do this? Mr. I mean, Castro. Political asylum, I'm sorry, but no, no, political pol asylum is always uh, available on a case-by-case -case basis. Right, and it's really hard to get. Um, and, um, you know, I, you know I, we have dealt with, with, Im with immigrants and refugees who have fled some of the most horrific situations who don't quite meet the standard to be able to prove um, to the courts that, in fact, they have a well-founded fear of Putin. Fear of it is a very, very high standard. Fear of the Taliban, fear of, uh, yeah, and fear you know, of uh, Putin, fear right. of uh, the CCP persecuting right. uh, Uyghur Muslims. I think that's why we set up political asylum, fear of persecution. But I want to say, Ranking yeah. Member, I think I, I don't think fear of Putin. I mean, I, I, you know, to me, 
I don't think fear of Putin qualifies for political asylum in our courts. Yeah, Mr. Castro, sure. Mr. Really, yeah. Yeah. really quick, just to give some context and why your question is incredibly important. Uh, people on parole need to renew their parole each year. So current parolees, it's true, would write out the year, but the new criteria in HR2, this legislation, would make them ineligible for renewal. So it's true that the people here would continue on for the year, for year, but the coming year, they're gone. So that's what's at stake for each of those communities that I mentioned and one of them that you were just yeah. talking about. And why, why, would, why would we even do that to the Ukrainians who have fled this terrible violence uh, and unrest? In, in, I mean, I, I, like, what, 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 would, what do people think, Mr. Nadler? I'd, I'd simply point out that uh, when we're talking about parole for Ukrainians, I mean, in addition to what you just said about the, the year, the Ukrainians want to go home. They want to stay here only until that war ends and they can go home. This is not a class of people who want to stay here. We're not talking about, uh, well, we may be talking about a few people who claim political asylum, but for the, and, 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 and they should be uh, subject to the normal asylum requirements. But we're talking for the most part, 99%, about people who want to go home, who may come here last year or in the last few months since, since the invasion in the last mm -hmm. year, or next month or the month after that or however long this war lasts, but want to go home as soon as it's safe to do so and, and the war is over. And that's what uh, is prevented by this bill. Right. So if I understand this correctly, um, if, if this bill were to become law today, if you are a Ukrainian who came here tomorrow, you would not be able to get parole, um, number one. Number two, if you're a Ukrainian who is here, you have a year. And then what do you do, what, what do, you do after a year? You've you got to get out, even if the war is still going on. Yeah, you've got to get out, yeah. Does anyone, I mean, disagree, I mean am I, are, we, are we misreading something here? I mean, really? Oh, my God. I, I yield back. Again, before we proceed to the next member for questions, again, I've been advised that we need to switch out uh, one of our witnesses. Do any members have questions specifically for Mr. Castro? Seeing none, my friend is excused, and uh, I think uh, Representative Phyllis McCormick will replace him at the panel. Welcome. That uh, will move for questions to distinguished ranking member of the uh, committee, my friend from Texas, Mr. Burgess. Okay, well, my friend yields. Mr. Reschenthal is recognized for questions. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Dr. Burgess, for yielding to me. I will be incredibly brief. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to just ask for unanimous consent to enter into the record a New York Times article entitled Alone and Exploited Migrant Children Work Brutal Jobs Across the U.S was published the 25th of February of this year. Without objection. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, briefly, Chairman Green, would you like to just talk about the fact that uh, there's children coming across the border? This New York Times article that's just been entered in the record cites it about 85,000 that have just been lost. No one knows where they are and what kind of uh, impacts that might have on a migrant child. Yeah, that uh, New York Times article was pretty uh, damning of some of the decisions made by the Secretary of Homeland Security. Um, and, and the New York Times is not known to be a, a conservative, uh, you know, reporting institution. Uh, but they specifically cite that the problem was a decision made by Mayorkas to stop the background checks on the sponsors. 
And by doing so, uh, these children are being basically co collected in 2030 uh, in, in, to one sponsor and then being used um, in incredible inhumane conditions. Um, it, it's just appalling. And so you take the 85,000 that we don't even know about. I mean, th these are people that went through the program, were sponsored. Some of them, we actually know where they are, but they, they passed through a sponsor that never got a background check. There are 85,000 out there. We don't know where they are. And you, you mentioned that, you know, children in the pathway. I mean, we visited on the border a rape tree where the undergarments of the young girls are placed on the tree as a trophy to the cartel members who bring them here. When you open the border, and let, let's assume for a second it's, it's well-intentioned. You, you, you open the border, you ca everything's catch and release. The cartels saw the opportunity. And so they seized that opportunity and began trafficking humans for a price. Uh, Homeland Security Investigation says it's making the cartels $15 billion a year. In that process, incredible inhumane things happen. Again, Doctors Without Borders, not known to be a conservative Republican organization, said 35% of the women are raped. So if you open this up, you create this mass wave, you are facilitating human trafficking, you are facilitating the, what's happening to these children. If we use the legal process, this doesn't happen. And that's the point of this, is really honestly, is on the asylum side especially, just getting back to the way the law has been written. So um, I, it's a tragedy, honestly, of epic proportions, and thanks for asking the question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. With that, I yield back. Thank you very much. We now go to my other friend from Pennsylvania. Ms. Scanlon is recognized for any questions she cares to pose. Thank you. Um, as, as I hope this discussion has demonstrated, uh, immigration and border security are pretty complex issues, and as such, they require nuanced and comprehensive solutions. Unfortunately, neither of those terms describes HR2. Uh, it's pretty clear that our colleagues don't actually want to promote meaningful reforms that are required to secure the border or fix our broken immigration system. Instead, we've got a completely unworkable bill. And without any real solutions, we have instead inflammatory rhetoric, conspiracy theaters and theories and political fear designed to stoke fear and chaos. Um, we saw how the failed and inhumane immigration policies of the previous administration weakened our economy, undermined our moral standing in the world, inflicted permanent harm on migrant children and their families, and didn't make us any safer. HR2 would waste American taxpayer dollars building a border wall that experts have testified time and time again will not solve our border issues. Instead, we should be investing in infrastructure at the ports of entry, where 90% of fentanyl and illicit drug smuggling is actually happening. And most troubling of all, this legislation puts children in harm's way, even as our colleagues claim that they want to protect children. It opens the door to jailing kids indefinitely, bars them from seeking asylum, and denies them access to representation that they need to navigate our complicated immigration system. During my legal career, I spent decades working on immigration cases, and I know the system is broken. 
But I also understand the realities many of those arriving at our border face. I represented kids and other asylum seekers who've come to the U.S. to flee gang activity, political violence, abuse, starvation, trafficking, and other exploitation. People risk their lives to come here because the situation in their home <coughs> countries is so horrific for all of those reasons. These conditions have been building for decades. This bill does nothing to address those conditions. During markup in judiciary and again today, our colleagues have tried to justify provisions that would endanger and inflict harm on migrant children by saying they wanted to send them safely home, ignoring the fact that the whole reason they migrated was because home was not safe. And in many cases, home didn't exist. These kids were orphans. Their families had already migrated. So, you know, we need to recognize both the conditions that people are fleeing and the meaningful contributions that immigrants make to our country. We benefit from the talent and tax dollars that result from functioning pathways for work in immigration. We need doctors, care workers, agricultural workers, researchers, and more to make our economy work. We need the tax dollars from younger workers to keep our social security system uh, solvent. So it's to all of our benefit to provide functioning pathways for people to enter the U.S. lawfully. This bill does nothing to fix our immigration system, so I, I deeply oppose its passage out of committee. Ranking Member Nadler, I think you had something you wanted to add. Yes, thank you very much. I just want to uh, uh, comment on uh, what Chairman McCall said about that New York Times report. 85,000 children are not lost. Once HHS releases children to their sponsors, part of their post-release services are a follow-up phone call. If three phone calls go unanswered, the children are marked as unreachable on a spreadsheet. I don't know that any of us answer every unknown phone call we receive. The same situation happened under the Trump administration, and Obama's DPC director provided the same explanation. Thank you. And I, I know from experience with representing kids in this situation, they are most often released to custody of a relative. So, um, you know, yes. should we have more services to address the needs of migrant children, social services, representation? Absolutely. But uh, I'm afraid the 85,000 talking point is, as some would call it, malarkey. Um, Representative Thompson, was there something you wanted to add? Uh, yes, and uh, thank the chair for allowing me to sit. Um, for the most part, I, I've heard the comments, and I'd just like for the record to reflect that the bill we're talking about today uh, and the section pertaining to homeland um, there was nothing about unaccompanied children in it. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's that part that I think that we need to understand. Our committee spent those 16-plus hours, and there was nothing about unaccompanied children in the bill. Uh, as important is um, uh, we offered a good number of amendments that we thought uh, should have been considered. Not a single Democratic uh, amendment uh, was accepted. We wanted to increase the number of people working at the border. That was turned down. We wanted to level the pay of people working at the border. That was turned down. A number of efforts to make the, 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 the climate of the employees better uh, because there are people working side by side in many instances who are 
federal employees who are making different salaries for the most part uh, doing similar work. So uh, I look forward to the chairman going forward with this bipartisan effort. Mm -hmm. It's just that it didn't uh, manifest itself in this bill. Mm -hmm. We got it 15 minutes before the deadline uh, to consider. And, and uh, we'll look forward to the bipartisanship that we have historically had in this committee and that this bill uh, is a radical departure from that uh, uh, bipartisanship. Thank you. I think we did see the parts about the unaccompanied minors in the judiciary markup, and we only went for about 15 hours, so you worked harder than we did. <laughs> but um, we similarly offered uh, dozens of amendments which were not accepted. Um, the part about unaccompanied minor children um, was particularly troubling given how vulnerable these kids are. And it, it, if they're going to be incarcerated, as suggested by the bill, then clearly Homeland Security has to um, deal with where they are placed. I mean, what this bill does do is probably a huge boon for the private prison industry, which will reap uh, untold benefits from all the incarceration that is proposed by this bill. Um, not something I would recommend. Well, you know, we keep them for 72 hours, and after that, the law says we have to pass them on. Uh, and, and that becomes the, the burden of HHS. Mm -hmm. So DHS is out of the business mm -hmm. uh, in short order, and all of what's being discussed about children becomes a function of HHS, not DHS. I think that's under the Flores decision, but this bill, as, as introduced, will gut the Flores decision. That's right. So um, that's one of the big objections to it. Um, I think at this point I'd yield back. Thank you. Thank you very much. We now move to my uh, good friend, the distinguished vice chairman of the committee, Mr. Burgess. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> I just want to take, um, before we get to the business of the day, Probably within the last hour, that meeting down the White House has wrapped up, and uh, I don't know how it turned out or what to expect on the uh, discussions of the debt limit. <clears throat> but I do know this, Mr. Chairman, without your stewardship of getting that bill, the Limit, Save, and Grow bill, through the Rules Committee and onto the floor, they wouldn't be having that discussion. Amen. So incredibly important to get that bill Past two weeks ago, uh, that gives me optimism that HR1, having such a, a, a good position now in, in getting the debt limit discussions going, HR2 can perhaps have an equal amount of <clears throat> gas in the tank for getting a, a border security bill uh, or border security under discussion. Mr. Jordan, I, I don't want to imply that I wasn't listening, but maybe I wasn't listening as carefully as I should have been as you started Never your remarks. You gave us a recitation of some numbers yes. of what this country has seen in the last two and a half years. Yeah, but just the last weekend, 26,072 hours in, in one sector in, in Texas. So um, 5 million over the 28 months of the Biden administration. So you could go on and on. Uh, but the big so numbers... So let me just stop you there. 5 million over the months of the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. Is anyone aware of a comparable situation in any country where five million people in two years and a little more 
have been infused into the population. I mean, that, well, and that's on top of we normally take in what 1.1 million people legally each year. Yeah, yeah. And I will I will tell you what one of the uh, the sheriffs who testified at a hearing he said 28 years of law enforcement. He's a sheriff in, in on, on the border in Arizona. He said he's never seen it this bad in 28 years. He's never seen it this bad. And frankly, he said in the previous administration, it was as good as he's ever seen it. So in 28 years of law enforcement on our southern border, he says right now it's as bad as it's ever been. Bad or worse. And, and then here is the problem and why it is so critically important that people see a seriousness about a border security bill. In 48 hours, what has been untenable may become astonishing in its good, level. Good point. Good and point. we've seen the drone pictures of people that are sort of waiting their their time to because of this notion that when Title 42 expires, there really will be no limits on the amount of people that can come into this country. Is that correct? Yeah, and the one other thing I, when you have that volume of folks coming across the border coming into our nation, there are going to be some bad bad people. And we know of 200 on the terrorist watch list. And never forget a year ago when Secretary Mayorkas was in front of the Judiciary Committee, we asked him a question. At the time, it was only 42, I believe. Now it's 200. At the time, 42, we said, what are the status of those individuals? And you may remember his answer, because everyone watched and remembered. He said, I don't know. He didn't know if they were detained. He didn't know where they were. And you were coming in front of the Judiciary Committee as the Secretary of Homeland Security. Homeland Security, security of the nation, you should know the status of the 42 individuals who are on the terrorist watch list, and he did it. And now that number is, is, is five times what it was at the time that he testified. So one of the other things that's being discussed currently down on the border is the, in a, will, will be the inability of the NGOs to handle the number of people that are dropped off at their locations. Now, historically, I mean, multiple trips down to McAllen, I've seen it over and over and over again where a notice to appear is given and the folks are dropped off at Sacred Heart Church in, in downtown McAllen. They're given a fanny pack with a bottle of water and a bus ticket and, and good luck to you. But now those NGOs will be overwhelmed. Catholic charities will be overwhelmed. And basically people will just be turned loose on the street corners and hope to catch a bus somewhere. Um, has there been any discussion either in judiciary or homeland security about how that's going to be handled? What's going to be what's going to be the mechanism of control on the streets of those border communities? Either one of you. You used the right word, uh, Doctor. Uh, the word is overwhelmed, and that's what's happening. And now the Biden administration is talking about, and Secretary yeah, Marks is talking if, about. If I could, they're overwhelmed uh, now. Yeah. In forty-eight yeah. hours, in worse. a week's time. The it's going to be astonishing at the level. The yeah. president did act, act, you know, he is sending 1,500 military down there to process. But again, what, yeah, what the know, president... Let me interrupt you there. Yeah. And my, <laughs> our governor, my governor said 1,500. And these yeah. are people with pencils in their hand to That's correct. To They're there to process people. They're not there to stop anyone. And that just encourages more. And that, that number should be 15,000 or 50,000. On a, as a, with, with enforcement capabilities. Instead, these are clerical They're personnel. processors, yes. So... Was, add to the incentive. Yeah, I'm, and, and really that's what's, that's really what's so worrisome. And it, Mr. Jordan, you, Chairman Jordan, you re, uh, referenced uh, a term that a lot of people may not be familiar with. and We, we know from past experience there are so many people that hang on the, 
the televised, televised rules committee hearings, but can can you explain the Darien Gap to people who might not know? It's what in the Panama, it's where they is. come through, and it's 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 and they're they're already massing there. So um, you know, and we've we've all seen the we've all seen the caravans of folks coming, and, and you know, look, we all say we don't fault anyone for wanting to get to the greatest country ever. But you got to do it legally. You got to do it the right way, and you got to have an administration that understands that. And this one doesn't. But the Darien Gap is that area of real estate that exists south of Panama, between Panama, yep. the Isthmus of Panama, and South America. But it is also some of the most ungoverned and lawless and dangerous real estate yep. on the face of the earth. Is that not correct? Yeah, we've had. I, I've not been there personally, but we've had members members go down there and see for themselves. I think Chairman Green has been there. But yeah, that's that's what we're talking about, and they're. Estimates are now thousands are already massing there to, to make the trek and the, the, the burdensome and troublesome trek for uh, north. Well, I again the the, the policies and, and what this administration has followed has only exacerbated the problem and it's fixing to get worse on a level that I don't think anyone really can adequately anticipate. Um, I also, Mr. Chairman, I had some, uh, we heard about the, the New York Times article. I have a, a second New York Times article that I'd like to submit for the record. My migrant children were put to work, and the United States ignored the warnings. And Mr. Thompson is exactly correct. Three days. Without objection. Three days after, uh, or after 72 hours, those children are turned over to the Department of Health and Human Services. And the issue there has been the throughput then became so critical. Get those kids in and get them out quickly. And you heard references to Secretary Becerra saying this could be a Henry Ford type assembly line. In this article from the New York Times, uh, Susan Rice is quoted as saying, this is BS. These kids are coming here just because they're, what is, it, that, <clears throat> This is BS, Mrs. Rice wrote. What is leading to voluntary separation is our generosity to unaccompanied children. I mean, that is pretty harsh. And that is in this administration. That was a domestic policy advisor until a week and a half ago in this administration. So I do want this to be made part of the record. And then as part of a hearing that we held in uh, the Oversight Investigations on Energy and Commerce, which does have jurisdiction over the Office of Refugee Resettlement, um, the Inspector General came into that hearing and they had prepared a report from the, and I would also like to submit for the record the uh, Office of Inspector General operational challenges within ORR and the ORR emergency intake site at Fort Bliss hindered case management for children. Without objection. So on page 15 of this report, uh, Headline uh, is the Office of Refugee Resettlement issued field guidance that removes certain steps of the sponsor screening process across ORR facilities, potentially increasing children's risk of release to unsafe sponsors. Subparagraph, according to federal field specialist supervisors, some ORR field guidance issued from March of 2021 through June of 2021 was developed without adequate input from ORR staff with expertise in child welfare. Well, let me translate that for you. Originally, 
ORR could only release children in their custody to family members or close <coughs> relatives after appropriate vetting. But they changed the guidance. It was a field guidance that was issued in March of 2021 where they, they didn't need to take those protective steps anymore. Mm. So I actually believe, Chairman McCall, that that 85,000 number that you referenced when we actually know that number is going to be significantly higher because Secretary Mayorkas unilaterally changed by field guidance, not something that went through the Administrative Procedures Act, certainly not something that came through a legislative committee in regular order, but by field guidance said, we don't need to do this work anymore and we can send these kids wherever the heck it is we want. And that is what has led to the crisis that the New York Times has, has published these articles. We have to have a secure border. After we have a secure border, we can talk about any number of immigration reforms any one of us would like to see, but we do not have a secure border. And in fact, the border is becoming less secure by the hour, mm -hmm. and over these next 48 hours, again, I submit we are going to see a crisis of really really unheralded proportions. So, again, Mr. Chairman, I do want to ask both of these articles. Uh, uh, Dr. Can I respond to that? Because yes, I have to say, this is what worries me. These children that come in are being sent to stash houses, essentially. And I've lived this for a long time, but this is the worst. And so they're not vetted. The sponsors aren't vetted properly. You got 10, maybe 20 kids going to the same house. This is not a mom and pop thing not a mom-and-pop shop, really. It's a, it's a trafficking organization Correct. that's happening inside this country right now. And it's the children that are being affected by this policy. And if I recall correctly, it was the Houston chief of police that said, to Homeland, not to Homeland Security, but ORR, you're releasing all of these children to the same address, and you don't even know where that is. And, and there was no vetting of the process. Mm -hmm. And Secretary Mayorkas issued field guidance, not going through normal administrative procedures, not going through the legislative branch. Here's the field guidance. We can just kind of send them wherever we want. And that is nuts. And we're asking for trouble. We're asking for more disasters. But as bad as it is today, a week from now, there's no telling how, what the numbers are that we're going to see. We all know they're going up. They're high now, but they're going to get higher and more and more people are going to be hurt. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll yield back. Thank you very much. We now go for questions to my good friend from New Mexico, Ms. Ledger Hernandez. Thank you ever so much, Chair Cole, for giving me the opportunity. And before I get into questioning, I wondered if uh, Ranking Member Nadler might want to respond to some of the, that, well, those questions that we were just hearing. Well, thank you very much. I just want to make one point. Title V of this bill will result in long-term detention of children. This title eliminates the current requirement that DHS transfer children within 72 hours to HHS custody. During the border surge of 2018 under the Trump administration, we saw horrible images of many children held in CPB custody in crowded and often squalid conditions for lengthy periods of time. If this bill is implemented, if Title V of this bill is implemented, the lengthy detention of children in such hard conditions would become standard operating procedure. I thank the gentleman. Well, will the gentleman yield? 
Um, for response. Actually, I want to respond to that first. Uh, and I think that I've been at the border following under the Biden okay. administration, and I saw the way in which our uh, custom patrol officers were working really hard to make sure that those children were processed as quickly as possible. They were moving them into nonprofits uh, where they were being well cared for. And the problem is one of funding. There had been supplemental funding to provide for this, and we need to continue to provide for that supplemental funding. And what we have to do is fix the broken immigration system. And I think that's what we all agree on, but we should not fix it on top of the backs of these poor children. And I was, as I was there at the border, and, and you might appreciate this, uh, Representative Burgess, as I was there at the border, I recalled another story, another story of a refugee, another story of somebody, of a mother who was going to send her child to a place that she believed he would be safe because she knew that where she lived, he would not be safe. And so that mother gathered her baby and she put him in a small raft and put him on the Nile River and sent him downstream. Because if she would have kept him at home, she knew he would die. That baby was welcomed. That baby was Moses. And I call upon us here, I call upon our Republicans to think about the story of Moses and imagine what it must be like to be a parent who sends her child north through the Darien Gap, through all of these tragic circumstances, because they want their children to live. They want their children to live. Earlier, we heard from Representative Joaquin that that was what was written on the application for his grandmother, that that grandmother was sent here in order to live. And I think that that is a really key thing of what we must do. Now, I want to address the issue that uh, Dr. Burgess did raise with regards to the debt ceiling. Um, because it strikes me that comprehensive immigration reform, something like the US uh, Citizenship Act, would spur economic growth. Indeed, the last time Congress seriously considered comprehensive immigration reform in 2013, the CBO estimated it would increase gross domestic product by 1.4 trillion. So if we're serious about addressing economic issues in our fiscal house, we would actually pass comprehensive immigration reform, the kind of reform that would make it possible for those who are now here working, those who are now here starting businesses but without papers, that they would then be able to contribute to our economy. I actually am old enough to have participated in the Immigration Reform and Control Act as an attorney helping those who were going to gain lawful status through the IRCA. What we saw was a boost in economic activity from that, a significant boost. When, but let's talk about bills that we've actually put forth and where do we get that support from? When I'm in New Mexico, I'm as, I let everybody know, I have a rural district, so I'm talking to my farmers, I'm talking to my home builders, and what I hear them say over and over again is they want us to pass immigration reform that addresses their need for workers, that addresses their need for workers on the ranches, the farmers, that allows dreamers 
to stay in the U.S. I'm going to ask each of the chairs, yes or no, uh, did, does this bill that we're presently put before us, it is, does it address the need for additional um, workers that we have in our society? Perhaps I'll start with you. Um, this is a border security bill, not an immigration bill, as I understand it. Um, so once we once we get border security, we can we can fix the immigration. The problem is is that it has been exemplified by this administration's unsecuring the border. It creates an incentive that drives more and more folks uh, into the country. If you fix the immigration system and, and provide with an unsecure border, it's just even more. So that's why our argument, I think uh, Mr. Burgess was, or you know, Congressman Burgess was making this point earlier, you know, let's get border security and then we'll, let's, let's talk about immigration reform. But this bill, uh, by its thank title, you, and thank I you think very by much. its contact, Thank you so very much, Chairman, because I think that that really is a, a, a difference of opinion. That I think that what we're looking at is that we can do both that we should do both because in order to do comprehensive, you need to address both. And you need to address those things that are most impactful to our issues, which I'll get to in a bit. By the way, did you vote for the Bipartisan Farm Workforce Modernization Act uh, last cycle? I'd have to go look, I don't remember. <laughs> Let me tell you, that Bipartisan Farm Worker Modernization Act, I am, that was one of those pieces of legislation that was worked out by those most impacted, right? It was worked on by the United Farm Workers, and they came to the table and they told us, you know what, it doesn't have everything we want, but it has what we need. It was worked on by those who are, whose, whose businesses depend on those workers. So it was both business was at the table, farm work was at the table, we had a bill, it was bipartisan, Mr. Chair, I don't believe you did vote. You did not vote for it. Probably did. And actually, do you, <laughs> Chair, uh, Ch Chair McCall, do you recall, have you voted for it? I don't believe I did. <laughs> I don't think you did. And, and Chair Jordan, I know you didn't vote for it either. But, but those are the, you haven't got, I'm sure but there was some the reason in there. Right. <laughs> but those are the kinds of things that if we did that, right, that is bipartisan, we would start addressing so many of the issues we have, especially in areas, in rural areas like mine. And I'm looking over at our ranking member, Thompson. You and I often talk about the issues that we need addressed in rural areas. You and I, uh, you know, we represent uh, big rural areas. Tell me, like, how does what we're looking at now impact your rural communities? Well, thank you very much. Uh, I have a large agricultural district that depends significantly on the migrant labor force to harvest our crops. Uh, without it, uh, those crops could not be harvested, to be, to be honest with you, whether the individuals are coming in from the southern border or from the northern border or, or wherever. Uh, in addition to that, uh, our challenge is uh, we have a value system as America that we have to uphold. The Homeland Security part of this bill would say that those NGOs that was talked about earlier, that if one person they helped turn out to be illegal, they could get no additional DHS funds. And if, if in my situation, I have a working disaster, 
uh, in my district right now. If the Red Cross or another NGO uh, are trying to help people with lodging or whatever, if they are cited, then they lose all the funding associated uh, with DHS. So we put a lot of people out, 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 out of work. There are some other issues associated with it. And, and uh, I know there are some, some challenges that we have to uh, look at, but those NGOs play a significant part in addressing uh, a lot of issues along the southern border. And for us to, to, to try to punish them for their humanitarian efforts uh, would not be good. We often refer to those NGOs and to the many volunteers who work with them who have huge hearts. Imagine, them, imagine the compassion, the compassion that these organizations have. Thank you, Chairman Jordan, for, for nodding, because you know what these NGOs are facing, and you know they have big hearts, right? But they have a lot of volunteers, and they are there to help out. Uh, rank, uh, she, Representative Sheila Jerflakis uh, uh, McCormick, sorry if I mess up the name. Tell me about your experience and how you see this as actually, I think, are you our only representative in Congress who, who is a um, migrant from Haiti? Am I correct on that? Thank you so much. Um, I'm the only member of Congress as a Democrat who's ever been a descendant of Haitians. My parents came from Haiti fleeing a dictatorship. And one thing I wanted to make very clear is that the incentive to leave your home, to come through water, walking, um, millions of people don't make it to this country, and they take that risk, and it's only because you have no other choice. It's pressed. It's, could you hear me? It's low. It's, it's low. Okay. So what I was saying, um, the incentives. This bill, when it deals with the foreign affairs um, part of it, it doesn't deal with the actual incentive. No one is incentivized to come to the United States because of the policies. It's because of you have no other choice. You're suffering in your country. You are being persecuted. But what we do have an opportunity to do is actually add and create bills that would deal with the root core causes. When we look at what's going on and why we have such high migration patterns, in fact, it's because of the post-COVID world, coupled with the rise of authoritarian um, regimes that are trying to pop up throughout Latin America and in South America. In addition to that, the gangs that are growing. And to be quite honest with you, our inaction in the last administration with dealing with our foreign neighbors and being good partners. We have an opportunity right now to have bilateral relationships, multilateral um, relationships and funding, helping those root causes, especially when it comes to food insecurities, when it comes to political insecurity, we can live up to our reputations at this moment and be that beacon of hope for all countries. But we have to start with doing what we do in foreign affairs, which is building and stepping in and being the diplomats we can be. And so that's the problem I have with this bill here. This is actually not dealing with incentives. And I hear a lot of it, like we have incentive policies now to come to the United States. That is absolutely incorrect. The motivation to come to this country is because of desperation. And we have to address that. So when we look at what we can do, let's incentivize them to stay home. Let's incentivize them to be in their native land. No one wants to migrate to the United States, especially at this time. You want to be in your homeland. You want to be with your family. Millions die on this trek. Millions give up their life trying to get here. They understand the risk of being trafficked. Women understand that. They understand the risk of their children being taken from them. But the other risk is being dismembered in your own country. 
The other risk is being torn apart, watching your child being raped in front of you. We've heard reports in Haiti of a three-year-old being raped over and over again. Where are our diplomatic efforts? Where are we there trying to make sure we have governance? That's what this portion has to be when we talk about foreign affairs. And we have to come back to that and not surrender to the rhetoric that we hear about what's really incentivizing to have people come to this country. It is not because, because the border is open. Millions of people are turned away and can never come back. We're not even really looking at asylum seekers and giving them those opportunities with this. And so with that, I yield back. Thank you very much. And I think what you point out is that we're not incentivizing. Actually, the, the, the trouble is us, Congress. Congress has failed to pass immigration reform for decades. The burden lies here, right? And so we've had Republican presidents. Bush kept talking about want, wanting to solve this, right? We have Republican and Democratic presidents talking about the need to solve this. And because we haven't gotten a bipartisan agreement, I think it lies with us. The blame lies with us in Congress. Uh, I'm Chair McCall, I, I am so sorry uh, to hear of the, uh, the funerals that your children had to attend to those uh, who lost uh, to fentanyl. New Mexico has a very high rate of uh, addiction and overdose. I often talk about the fact that I lost two brothers uh, to addiction. And so these are issues that are really um, hard for communities and, and it's ravaging our communities. Um, so so I, I, I'm really sorry to hear that and sorry to hear how close it has struck uh, to your own family and your own home. I guess when I think about it, though, I go back to the, the Cato Institute uh, study, which actually acknowledged that 90% of the fentanyl that is being brought into the United States is being brought through our ports of entry, is being brought by United States citizens. Uh, and with that, uh, Mr. Chair, I'd like to uh, enter into the record um, the September 14, 2023 Cato Institute article, Fentanyl is Smuggled for U.S. Citizens by U.S. Citizens, Not Asylum Seekers. Without objection. Thank you. And I think that, that, um, that when we think about that, that we need to really consider seriously the, the amendment by my own colleague uh, from... New Mexico, uh, represent, Representative Vasquez, who actually would direct more money uh, to the border to increase the kind of technology that we know that works at the border. <coughs> Will you be supporting Representative Vasquez's amendment to direct more money to the border uh, for uh, those kinds of interdictions? It's for non-intrusive inspection technology for $305 million. Well, I can't speak to her amendment. I'll, I'll tell you, I do support technology that can screen. I think that's, that's smart uh, border security, you know, policy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know for, I met with the DEA administrator just a couple of days ago. Uh, this is all coming from China. And it goes through one port in western, you know, Mexico, and it spirals up into the United States. And it's everywhere. Yeah. It's absolutely everywhere. And to yeah, my good friend on the Foreign Affairs Committee, Chairman Meeks and I passed a, marked up a bill on Haiti, on international law enforcement, on <laughs> sanctioning gang members, on you know dealing with the political situation. And I, I agree, we got to deal with the root cause of this as well. My dear colleague, uh, Mr. Green, 
has a bill on Central America providing more private investment in Central America. Because when you have lawlessness and chaos and gangs and warlords in Haiti, lack of opportunity, lack of opportunity, you're going to drive that magnet. And we're just saying the policy, though, of political asylum is pulling the magnet into the United States as well. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, I think we have, I, I think what I want to make sure is that when we talk about fentanyl, because I get fentanyl when I go home, I'm, I'm a border state, uh, the issue of fentanyl gets raised. And I think because it gets talked about all the time in relationship to asylum seekers, it gets confusing. I want to make sure everybody knows the facts are clear. Fentanyl is coming in through the ports of entry by 90% by uh, United States citizens and not by asylum seekers. We do not have little kids it, bringing right. in. It's a border security issue, not It's a border security issue. issue. Thank you. Could Thank I, you. Could I make a Mr. comment Chairman. about the 90% yes. though? It, the, the, I mean, my degree degree is in economics, and so the if you'll just bear with me just a second about the math equation to come up with that 90%. What, what they're doing, to, to say that 90% of what is seized happens is seized at the points of entry, when you equate that to that's where 90% of the fentanyl comes into the United States, that's a false uh, correlation because if that were the case, there wouldn't be fentanyl in the United States, right? I mean, so we, it's it's 90%, X is the number seized over, that seized at the, at the crossing site, is divided by the number seized at the crossing site plus the number seized not at the crossing site leaves out the number that we don't know because it didn't get seized. So you can't say that because 90% is seized at the crossing sites, 90% of the fentanyl is seized. That, that's a, a, a faulty mathematical equation. We have video in our committee of coyotes wearing backpacks, camouflage, and carpet shoes pouring across ranchers on, on game camera footage with fentanyl. And, and they find the drop sites in Arizona. I'm sure they're in New Mexico as well where hundreds of backpacks are found by law enforcement empty at a drop site where they're loading the fentanyl and bringing it in. Those numbers aren't in the equation. So you, it, you can, you're accurate if you're saying that 90% of what is seized is seized at the ports of entry. Well, that's where we got all the people looking. But if you say 90% of the fentanyl that comes into the United States comes in at a port of entry, that's mathematically incorrect. And I just want to make that point. Thank, thank, you so, yep. thank you so very much for it. But I think that what it does say, and in fact what you just said, is backpacks being left. And we actually have seen under this administration increased uh, interdiction of fentanyl. So there is an increased effort to address the fentanyl coming in. And the backpacks that are being left by the coyotes, and I think that we need to go after them strong. I mean, they are hurting my community. They're hurting your communities. They're hurting the United States. But when you look at whether it is these asylum seekers who are bringing it, that's when you try to equate that. That's yeah, the other I've never problem. said those words, and I, I agree with you. There are people who are legitimately want to come here for, for their better betterment. I, I get that. The vast majority of people that are coming are coming for their betterment. I understand that completely. The problem is, is that with the open border system we have, the drug cartels are taking advantage of it. And so they're, and, and it was fascinating that Merrick Garland 
said this was the cartel strategy in testimony to the Senate, that they're massing people, paid by the, paying coyotes, at crossing sites so that they can sneak the fentanyl and the bad, you know, nefarious individuals other, between the ports of entry. And that Secretary Mayorkas said he was unaware of that strategy. So Chairman, Chairman Green, did you vote for the debt uh, ceiling bill two weeks ago to cap discretionary funding? Yes, I did. Funding? Yeah, we got to get so our spending as we under know, control. As, as, as we know, we asked the department, uh, how would this impact your ability to continue to interdict? And they said it would lead to 2,400 fewer frontline CBP law enforcement officers. Uh, Representative Thompson, Ranking Member Thompson, do you have some thoughts on this conversation? Well, uh, thank you very much. First of all, uh, the technology improvements we proposed uh, uh, in markup didn't get approved. Uh, the only issue from a technology standpoint that the Homeland people are two-way radios. I mean, that's kind of horse and buggy. You need it, but uh, we offered intrusive uh, scanning capability at our ports of entry. That was turned down. All of the technological advances that we clearly understand that would help identify the fentanyl and other drugs coming across the border, uh, that was turned down. In terms of the statistics, the statistics uh, that the Cato Institute and other people talk about, those are statistics brought by the FBI, uh, uh, the other regulatory agencies who do this for a living. It's not a study. So uh, I think those figures are accurate. Our real charge is the Homeland Security part of this bill, uh, you know, puts at risk uh, a lot of opportunity to work with people who get here. Uh, uh, NGOs do a wonderful job in, in, in that. Now, everybody has stories, but the real part about it is as we work with the officials, uh, I think it's important for us to come up with a system. That's why my plea is with my chairman now, uh, after this border bill, he's publicly said we're going to do some bipartisan legislation. I really want to see it because we have the history in this committee on Homeland to work that out. Uh, the last point is um, uh, the ports of entry are the prime place that the fentanyl comes. I mean, that's, that's it. Now, the other points, I can't argue that, but in terms of the facts, when you start looking at the collection of, of the, the fentanyl, we capture them at the ports of entry. I mean, that's, that's the facts. And, and so uh, would people want to uh, catch more with the new technology? Uh, if it had been included in this bill, we could catch more. Uh, we, we didn't get it included. Uh, we offered to get uh, some new people hired. Uh, we didn't get the new numbers uh, for additional people hired. Uh, in the past, when we tried to get it, uh, new people brought on board, my Republican colleagues voted against it. You know, we need uh, good people working at the border, and, and we can't turn down uh, uh, those opportunities. So uh, we look forward to working with them. Uh, we have a problem with drones. 
coming across the border. Uh, we produced a drone amendment in the markup because uh, our people working at the border tells us uh, uh, drones are now one of those uh, new technologies mm -hmm. that bad people are using, and we need some anti-drone technology to defeat. We couldn't get it approved, so uh, we continue to look at technology, but we have to look at it uh, in a forward manner, not in the rearview mirror. Thank you, Representative Thompson. And I think that's what is so problematic about this bill, is that it's not a bill that's been worked out in a bipartisan fashion that looks at what the problem is and says, let's solve it, rather than let's create a political messaging, let's beat up on the president. This is not something that we should turn into a political football. It really needs, we need that kind of comprehensive immigration reform. We need the comprehensive border security that looks like at how they're all done. I really am looking forward to uh, uh, Chairman Green. Um, you know, 70% of Americans uh, favor the DREAM Act and addressing the fact that we have dreamers who are doctors, who are artists, who are nurses, who are teachers, who are so many amazing things but we cannot get the DREAM Act passed. Uh, 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 Chairman Green, when you talk about being ready to support others, will, are you supportive of the DREAM Act? I'd have to look at it. I haven't seen that bill. I don't know the exact wording. And I, just like I tell the government affairs people and the lobbyists who come into my office and say a great idea, I don't say yes until I read that entire bill. <laughs> so I'd have to read it and take a look at it. Thank you, Chairman Green. We have introduced the... I, I, I uh, was co-sponsor of the one last year, and last cycle, and this cycle, but that act has been introduced numerous times, and it usually basically says the same thing. So hopefully we'll get your support for it. Uh, and because I think that that's what we need to do is be real honest and support the things that we know Americans want. And then, you know, I really do appreciate uh, the reference uh, to scripture uh, in terms of how we look. Uh, at the refugees and asylum seekers and those who are crossing our border. Uh, and it reminded me, once again, going to Exodus, to not, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because once you were. And in many ways, we were all immigrants to this country. Um, you know, Deb Holland, you know, was not. And, and Chairman Cole and Cherise Davis, but so many of the others of us, we, we, we depend on immigrants to make our country diverse and vibrant and economically strong. And so I hope that we remember that and that we remember to treat uh, our Latinos, our Asians, our Haitians with the kind of respect and you know, awe that they deserve because they go through so much. Uh, Representative Burgess, I am sorry, uh, I got, caught up in the story of Moses and, and didn't yield as I had said I would. Uh, so I will yield now. Thank you. I just wanted to point out to the chairman or ranking member Nadler. Thank goodness he's ranking member Nadler. Um, you referenced the, the previous <laughs> administration, but it was actually in 2014 in the Obama administration when those horrific pictures of Kids in Cages were first published. It was our colleague Henry Cuellar who surreptitiously took 
pictures at the Ursula unit in, uh, in McAllen, Texas. And furthermore, when first many of those kids were moved to Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, just to deal with the overwhelming numbers at that time that were coming in, Ana Hernandez, who was the first lady of Honduras, came to San Antonio and she was asked, why don't you want your children back? And she said, of course we want our children back. And so the Obama administration accommodated them and, and flew those children back to Honduras. It had the immediate effect of rapidly diminishing the number of unaccompanied minors from Honduras that showed up in America. So to Mr. Jordan's point, it does work. That was a, that was a policy that was asked for by the Obama administration, <coughs> allowed to be used in the Obama administration, it actually worked, uh, and all we're asking is for a, a, a similar path forward in this, in this bill. This is a border security bill, not an immigration bill. Fix the border, we can have the discussions about immigration reform. Back in, in 1986, the Simpson-Mazzoli bill, because of the double cross that occurred then, it told President Reagan, you give us amnesty, and we'll, we'll, we'll fix the security problems. Well, they got the amnesty and they never fix the security problems. M most of the people that I represent do not want to take that risk again. I yield back. Thank you, Representative Burgess. Uh, uh, ranking member, do you want to add anything to that or shall we move on? <laughs> uh, and I, I, I will move on, but I think the, the, the image that is seared in so many Americans' minds is, is, is those babies. Um, and those children torn from their parents during the prior administration. Uh, and I just hope that we remember that and reject it always, because that is not who we are. We are much better than that. America is much better than that. Uh, and so with that, I yield back. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, gentlelady. Before we proceed to the next member for questions, I understand we need, uh, once again, to switch out one of our witnesses. Do any members have uh, any questions specifically for Chairman Jordan? I you think his replacement is, yeah. is more than capable of answering questions and uh, just showed up and I know is eager to join us. So Thank you, Mr. seeing none, without objection, uh, my friends excused, Mr. McClintock will replace Chairman Jordan on the panel. And with that, we'll go to my friend from Minnesota for any questions he may have. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and, and I was going to, I think first I just really wanted to point out, um, my colleague from New Mexico talked about, uh, you know, comprehensive immigration reform and all kinds of things in the bill from last year, but um, I just wanted to point out that, 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 that the Democrats were in control of everything last year and still failed to do it. Um, you know, it did pass out of the House, but um, I... I so I just wanted to point that out. So when you say we need to pass it, you had the opportunity last year and weren't able to do that. With the, with the representative For yield? just a moment, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, we did pass it out of the House. It yep. was bipartisan. We could not get enough Republican senators because of uh, the filibuster. Uh, we needed more Republican senators. So yes, we uh, 
in the House, we were in control, but as you know, the Senate has its own rules, and we had Democratic support, but we did not have sufficient Republican support in the Senate, but, so thank you, yes. But then it must not have been a bill that could have bipartisan support if you couldn't get it. But we won't go on that. I just had to point it on. I just had to point that, yes. Lady, will yield for an observation. In 2010, in a lame duck session of Congress, the House once again passed Senator Durbin's bill about addressing the Dreamers. They did not pass it in the Senate with three Republican yes votes. And the reason they didn't pass it in the Senate, remember, they had a 60-vote majority in the Senate at the time. Five Democratic senators voted no. The last time they had the opportunity was swing and a miss. Thank you. I yield back. And, and I just wanted to point that out because we keep talking about how we need this. But you had the opportunity and couldn't do it. Um, but uh, Mr. McClintock, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot just the second you get here, but I did have some questions. You know, I, I'm from an ag district, and there was some discussion before you got here about some of the, uh, you know, uh, the effects on the ag industry that this bill might have. And, you know, we're struggling, like ag industry and many industries are struggling with workforce issues. And I was just hoping that maybe to change the, uh, change the direction of the discussion and can you talk about some of the provisions in the bill that w could potentially help the ag industry and farmers with, uh, with reliable access and retaining reliable workforce? Well, for, first of all, it repeals the adverse effect uh, wage rate regulations uh, uh, of the Biden administration. That the, uh, the gentleman's mic on. It re can you hear that? Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah, it, it repeals the uh, adverse effect uh, rate, uh, wage rate regulations. Um, uh, there's also a provision that I believe was agreed to in negotiations uh, uh, the night before last uh, that um, uh, uh, postpones uh, the uh, provisions of E-Verify until it can be certified there would be no adverse effect on farm labor uh, supplies. So, so is, there are some reasonable things in here that would help with those issues. That, oh, yes. That, that yes. The, if rural communities I, I, are I, facing. I, I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks to the good work of a lot of our uh, representatives from agricultural districts. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the repeal of the wage rule of the, of the wage. And some bureaucrats in the Department of Labor with no experience in the field uh, decided to set a so-called modest rule that would increase costs for farmers in my district by nearly 15 percent. Uh, this is on top of the regulatory onslaught brought on by this administration over the past two years, two and a half years, excuse me, as well as crippling inflation. And I'm deeply concerned about the administration's complete lack of attention to the needs of rural America. And so I'm really glad that this was included. Um, and just wanted to um, maybe talk a little bit. And of course, then my computer freezes up. But uh, you know, maybe just some <coughs> how how that border security, not only in the way of fentanyl, but if we secure the border, it's it helps our communities all the way from Minnesota. Uh, all over the country, and maybe we can just refocus and talk a little bit about the issues that are caused when we have, um, you know, a free-flowing border. Well, again, first of all, the, the numbers are already staggering, and I think, I'm afraid they're going to be dwarfed uh, this week as, as the borders completely collapsed before our eyes uh, in the last 20. We had secure borders on Inauguration Day. Uh, by uh, mid-afternoon, we didn't. Joe Biden repealed the uh, Trump era remain in Mexico policy. He uh, um, uh, uh, ordered uh, uh, cessation of any kind of activity uh, on the border wall. 
uh, and he ordered ICE to stop enforcing deportation orders, about 1.2 million deportation orders. People have gone through the whole process, been ordered, deported, uh, and those orders are not being carried out. Uh, but the number that they've allowed into the country uh, deliberately, 2.1 million, that is larger than the uh, state of Nebraska. Uh, while the Border Patrol has been taking names and changing diapers on the border, overwhelmed by these numbers, 1.5 million known gotaways. These are people we watched on video cross the border or tracked crossing the border, um, of, uh, uh, but evaded uh, any kind of interception or capture. That's 1.5 million. That is the uh, uh, larger than the state of Hawaii. That's all in just 28 months. Um, uh, the, I've never understood how the Democrats believe that our schools are going to be improved by packing classrooms with non-English speaking students, or how our hospitals are going to uh, uh, be made more accessible by flooding emergency rooms with uh, illegals demanding care, or how our communities are made safer by introducing cartels uh, into our neighborhoods and, uh, and then making it all but impossible uh, to remove criminal illegal aliens uh, through their sanctuary policies. I don't understand how 300 deaths a day from fentanyl coming across the border, that's the equivalent of two uh, 737 airliners crashing every single day in this country, and, and they don't seem to be the least bit upset about that. Uh, what are we doing to, 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 to working families by flooding the um, uh, labor market with cheap illegal labor? Uh, and uh, uh, the, 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 the impact of these policies is, is being felt by every American, as every Border Patrol officer has, has told me. Uh, they don't stay here. They go throughout the country. And now you're seeing the social safety net meant to help Americans in need collapsing before our eyes. And you're hearing that not, not from <coughs> Fox News. You're hearing it from Lori Lightfoot and uh, uh, other Democratic mayors across the uh, uh, country. Well, and I appreciate that. And I, I just... The, the concern is nationwide about the about the un, the issues that come along with and the crime that comes along with that open border. And I, I mean, we all were back in our districts last week, and I was talking to a sheriff in rural Minnesota in a small county, and he was talking about the fentanyl, and they had had a, they there had was had a, a serial killer uh, uh, just caught in in Davis, California. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, came here as a UAC. He was part of the DACA program, apparently. Yeah. But um, but I will, um, given that I've frozen up a little bit, I will, my computer, I will yield back, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman? Uh, yes, sir. Unanimous consent request to insert in the record a statement uh, that explains how the E-Verify uh, mandatory program will force many of our farms to go under. So Without objection. There's no spin here. Yeah. Uh, gentleman from South Carolina is recognized for any questions he cares to ask. That would be fine. Well, the gentlelady from Indiana is recognized for her questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Norman. Um, thank you for coming here to testify today. I appreciate your time. Um, the Biden border cross crisis has made every state a border state, including the state of Indiana, where I'm from. Uh, I visited the border earlier this year. I went to Eagle Pass, Texas, and Uvalde. I visited the Unaccompanied Minors uh, Processing Center, where I uh, encountered 10 unaccompanied teenagers between the ages of 14 and 17, and one five-year-old girl. There was a 16-year-old uh, female holding on to this five-year-old girl, cradling her in her arms. And we spoke to these children. And uh, 
asked, is this your sister? She said, no, they handed her to me as I crossed the border. She has no family. Border Patrol agents let us know that after the new policies under this administration, these kids are really just handed a piece of paper where they're supposed to be taken once they get here. I worked in child services for about the first few years of my career. We couldn't send uh, foster children across state lines without a significant elaborate process to verify when they get there they're going to be safe. So I don't know if the number is 85,000 kids. Dr. Burgess, I imagine it's probably higher than that of kids that we don't know what happened to them. But what I know is that we're not DNA testing. Maybe we're calling, maybe we're calling them, but is that calling um, the human trafficking home to say, did so-and-so show up? Uh, that's not ensuring the safety of these kids. And we've heard about families that want to send um, young children over here because they're unsafe at home. But Border Patrol agents found an infant in a field alone, covered in fire ants, nearly dead. And they were able to save that young baby boy's life. Many do not make it across the border, adults and children. When I visited Uvalde, I heard of high-speed chases that occur three and four times a week, uh, shutting down the schools. I've heard that the ER is full of uh, women. The OB units are full of women having babies, and Border Patrol agents must stay there uh, while those women are in labor. What Border Patrol agents have described to me is like a war zone, and that's certainly not far from what I witnessed. In Eagle Pass, Texas, we visited a homeowner uh, where he sees 500 to 1,000 crossings across the river every day. His property, four acres of his property, uh, looked like a landfill. He and others uh, expressed to me that if Title for when Title 42 expires, they expect a fourfold increase in border crossings every day. It is a humanitarian crisis. Now, we've heard from our friends across the aisle that this has no chance of being enacted into law. I think there's a chance of it being enacted into law. The Democrats just have to vote for this bill, and they, have, they need to join us. There can't be a head-in-the-sand approach on the border. Securing the border is the first step in comprehensive immigration reform. Now, I also heard some comments about um, it's, if show me a 30-foot wall, I will show you a 35-foot ladder. But I can tell you it's faster to cross an unimpeded border than it is to climb <coughs> a 30-foot fence. Border Patrol agents would tell you that this is not just build a wall. The wall is a deterrent. It's a, it can slow them down. They also need technology. They also need personnel. They told me, as part of the Trump administration, that all of that was planned. Wall, technology, personnel. And that once the administration took over, the Biden administration took over, all of that was out the window. And we are in a crisis. So I, I'm asking, I'm encouraging, I think that if anyone saw what I saw at the border, they would say, this can't continue. We must secure the border. And we must join together to do that. So I would encourage our friends across the aisle to come together and join us in securing the border. 
Indiana has a tracker for opioid and fentanyl-related overdose deaths in our state. 220 of my constituents in the 9th District have died from drug-related overdose deaths in, la in the last year alone. That's 220 sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, family members. Even one is too many. And many of those deaths are a direct result of the influx of drugs like fentanyl from across our unchecked southern border. Chairman Green, I appreciate your comments about how we don't know how much fentanyl is crossing the border illicitly. I can tell you that Border Patrol agents told me when I visited uh, Uvalde that there are as many as 85 children are being held at one point um, in Mexico for one day to push them all across at once uh, as a distraction for Border Patrol agents so they can, uh, the cartels can get all the other illicit activity through unimpeded. We've all heard stories, but seeing it in person, it's caused needless pain and suffering for Americans. It's certainly caused needless pain and suffering for those in South Texas. I wonder, why did it take our president so long to visit? Better yet, why hasn't anything been done to secure the border just a few feet from where I was standing in Eagle Pass, Texas in March? And why are the Democrats silent as we approach the end of Title 42 on Thursday? The Department of Homeland Security has even predicted we could see upwards of 10,000 border crossings a day. That's 10,000 more uh, to add to the numbers, uh, the staggering numbers that we've already seen. It's a national security issue. The president and his administration have failed. They must act to resolve it. On the contrary, Republicans are leading the effort, um, and this is evidence of that, this bill. So I have a few questions. Um, first, for Chairman Green. Why is it so important, uh, why was it so important for the committee to include reconstruction of the border wall in the bill? And what benefit does that give to our national security? So the issue of the border wall, and thanks for the question, um, it, it's pretty simple. Walls work. They do work. Uh, CBP actually itself published uh, an article on it. Um, when the, when the wall was built in Yuma, there was an 87% decrease in illegal crossings from FY19 to FY20. Uh, there is others, October 2020 CBP press release, and I quote, the results speak for themselves. Illegal drug, border crossings, and human smuggling activities have decreased in areas where barriers are deployed. The border wall is forcing drug smugglers to where we are best prepared to catch them our ports of entry. The walls do work, despite uh, arguments made to the contrary. Uh, and there was a study done on the San Diego wall when it was uh, implemented that showed a 98% decrease in illegal border crossing. So that substantially, um, and, and I'll just speak as a military guy who used to, I mean, we use walls to, to canalize people, which means to make them all move to a certain area where you can better control them, uh, you can better assist them, uh, they work. And they're, clearly, it's, I agree with uh, uh, Chief Ortiz when he said that we're not going to build a wall from sea to shining sea. It, it's not necessary. But there are areas where it would be beneficial. When asked under oath uh, in front of our committee uh, just recently, the chief of the Border Patrol, currently working for the Secretary of, uh, you know, Secretary Mayorkas, said that he disagreed with President Biden's immediate stop of border wall construction. Uh, I think that says it all. Thank you. Um, 
one of the things that, that I heard when I was in Uvalde is that the illicit activity is totaling $3.5 million a week in um, drug trafficking, uh, human trafficking, organ trafficking, and other things. Can you elaborate on the improvements of the technology that are included in this bill and how that assists DHS in apprehending human and drug traffickers and smugglers? So in this bill, we have a technology plan that we're asking for from the department where they will go and build out their basically their technology requests. Uh, and, and it also requires that they create a plan that um, extends beyond the current needs so that they're forecasting how they'll do acquisitions, et cetera, for any new technology that's developed or implemented or, or, or evolves uh, over the next several years. So the, the bill specifically says that they have to create a plan, come back to us with that plan, and then we'll execute, uh, you know, appropriations, et cetera, to get that done. Thank you. Mr. McClintock, um, regarding the crisis of the unaccompanied children at our southwest border, uh, we've heard some of this from Dr. Burgess, but isn't it true that the Obama-Biden administration sought to have the authority to quickly screen and return children back home? Yes, they did. And, and, and by the way, we do that. Any child that comes to us through uh, Canada or, or Mexico, um, uh, there's a resident of those countries, we get them safely home. That's what you do if a, a little wave showed up on your doorstep. You wouldn't take them 10 doors down to the sweatshop or worse. You'd, you'd get them safely home. And this uh, bill simply uh, says that we're going to try to get every child safely home. Because, again, you, know, you, you want to stop this. This is trafficking. The cartels are doing the trafficking. They are making thousands and thousands of dollars on every child they bring into this country through this, this uh, horrific and, and dangerous process. Um, uh, I've asked the Border Patrol, how do we stop this? Send them home. The cartels don't give refunds. The moment one of these ch children is returned to their home, the trafficking stops because their business will dry up. And for some reason, we can't get our colleagues to understand this fundamental point. And isn't that the same authority that we're providing in HR2? Yes. yes. Uh, regarding the changes to asylum law, um, isn't it true that those with legitimate asylum claims can have their cases heard faster, years faster than they would under the current Well, of course, the, the, the courts are completely glutted now with, with uh, phony asylum claims. Uh, why are they making the phony asylum claims? Because they work. You make a phony asylum claim, uh, it's very simple. You get uh, instant uh, admission to the United States. You get a free ticket anywhere you want to go. You get lots of free stuff, including cash. Uh, you get indefinite residency permission. You get indefinitely work authorization. Uh, and years from now, when they finally get around to your case and you're ordered deported, you can be very confident you're not going to be deported. Under this administration, we've got 1.2 million deportation orders that are simply going unenforced. They've been through the process, they've been ordered deported, and, and the administration simply refuses to enforce those deportations. That's why they're coming. Now, this bill says, by the way, this bill says, um, if you want to make an asylum claim, uh, claim you may. Uh, and it will be processed. But we're going to enforce the existing law. This is not a new law. The existing law that says that during the pendency of your, of, of, of your, your claim, uh, uh, you must be detained. Uh, as, as Justice Alito said, it, it shall be detained means 
shall be detained. The problem is this administration refuses to do so. So what we're saying is if you're not going to be detained here in the United States, you're free to return to Mexico. You're free to uh, uh, seek uh, uh, a residency in, in any uh, safe third country uh, that we have an agreement with. Uh, but you're not going to be admitted into the country. Suddenly, all of the incentives to make phony uh, claims disappear, and now you've got room for the legitimate claims to be heard in a timely manner. Thank you. Yes, just for a minute. There, there are 1.2... Ms. Scanlon, there are 1.2 million deportation orders that this administration is not enforcing. Well, this administration, this, this president on his, on his first day in office ordered ICE not to enforce deportations. You can't get any more brazen than that. I will also just add that, um, you know, my, my husband has been a prosecutor for 16 years. He's now a judge. And uh, during the Obama administration could not get uh, people that committed violent crimes um, and uh, sex crimes deported. They are in U.S. prisons. Um, well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate it. Republicans, once again, are leading uh, with the strongest um, border security bill that we've seen in years. I hope that our Democrat colleagues will finally uh, join us in securing the border. As I said, this is the first step in comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, we must secure the border for all the reasons that we've discussed uh, today, and I'm, I'm proud to support this, this bill. With that, I yield back to Mr. Norman. Thank you. <laughs> Chair, thanks, gentlelady. The gentleman from South Carolina is recognized. Thank you. I appreciate the panelists coming in. Um, you know, the sad part about all this that we're seeing play out, uh, and Congressman McClintock, you mentioned it, you're only as good as if you enforce it. Now, everybody's up in arms about Title 42 ending. They haven't, since this administration took office, they haven't been enforcing it anyway. The numbers show that. Um, I've been to the border like I think most of y'all. It is sickening to see what's happening. Uh, it's sickening to see uh, the children that are getting raped. It's, it's sickening to see the fentanyl that came into South Carolina, and I would add we're all border states now that could have killed half of the state of South Carolina, which is 2.4 million people. We've got a total population of 5.2. It's sickening to see uh, the farmers we met with when we went to the border. Fences are being cut. Walls are being built to protect themselves. Uh, to, to hear the farmer plead with us, please do something. It's sickening to see law enforcement who we met with this week who don't know who in the world they're stopping when illegals uh, are committing crimes in this country. The blood is on the hands of this administration for letting this go. And it cannot be said any clearer. And to, to even try to make the argument that during the Trump administration, the numbers were not down. He was building 900 miles of wall and, and going to have designated points of entry. Uh, if walls don't work, take the locks off your house, folks. Uh, take the doors down. Let everybody in. It doesn't work. And Ms. McClintock, like you says, like you, you mentioned, uh, the schools that are being overrun now, the, the emergency rooms that are being overrun all over this country, uh, it's sickening to see that, no, that, that 
uh, we could solve it, but they're just not going to do it. This administration is devoid of any uh, reason. They're doing it for one thing, votes. And that's uh, it was shown in New York City when they're giving them licenses. It was shown when we were visiting. Uh, they were getting on airplanes. Where was the COVID vaccine, vaccine uh, card that the illegals had? They had none. Uh, and so the NGOs that are supporting this, it's sickening to see this. Uh, and the, the issue that all of us face, how are you going to walk this back? How do you walk this back in America? You can't unless you line buses up all over the country and deport people back. And I, I'm sick and tired of hearing, you know, you, you have dreamers. You have people who are valid who want to be here. That's true, but you verify it. And that's what this administration is not going to do. Um, Mr. McClintock, from an enforcement standpoint, and I, if, it, let's say this bill passes, the House and the Senate in a perfect world, uh, where's the enforcement part of this? We've got another year of horror under this administration. Where's the order going to come to enforce anything that's in this bill before us? It's a blessing sometimes and a curse sometimes, but in a democracy, you get the government you vote for. This is the government that the people of the United States voted for. If it turns out it's a government that is not to their liking, they have the opportunity to, to rectify that in the next election. Um, I, I am convinced this is a deliberate policy. It will continue as long as the people responsible for it remain in office. Uh, and um, uh, if you want to know why all of this is happening, uh, this is exactly, if, if you voted for the, for the Democrats, this is exactly what you voted for. And if that surprises you, you weren't paying very close attention because they made it very clear this was, was their intention. So ultimately, it will be up to the American people. Our job is to provide the, the, the laws that can be used uh, to, uh, to restore the integrity of our borders as history screams this warning at us that countries that either cannot or will not enforce their borders simply aren't around very long. Without uh, enforcement of our immigration laws, we have no immigration laws. Without immigration laws, we have no borders. And if we have no borders, we are no longer a country. We are simply a vast international territory between Canada and Mexico. And that is what the Democrats, I believe, have deliberately imposed on our country, and it's going to be up ultimately to the American people to stop them. And it's sad to say it's probably going to take another 9-11 that will happen. Well, that's what worries me the most of all. 1.5 million known gotaways. Now, th again, those are the people we actually saw crossing the border illegally. We know nothing about them at all. But we do know this. When this administration unconditionally surrendered Bagram Air Force Base, uh, uh, we had the Parwan military uh, uh, detention facility there. Uh, it was housing more than 5,000 most dangerous uh, terrorists uh, on the planet. We know where one of those 5,000 went. Ten days later, one of those 5,000 went to Abbey Gate at uh, Kabul Airport and detonated the bomb that killed 13 U.S. Marines. We don't know where the other 5,000 are. We do know we've been able to intercept 100 or so known terrorists at the border. We don't know how many are among the 1.5 million gotaways. I am afraid there will come a day uh, when we will suffer uh, a coordinated attack by terrorists who come through our southern border during this, uh, this period uh, of time. Um, and it, uh, the, the other thing I worry about a lot is we are introducing the, the violent uh, uh, cartels uh, into our major cities. How long will it be before we start seeing the kind of gun battles break out in our, in our American cities that have become routine in Mexico? Well, when you, it's not a matter of if, it's just when. 
when you let every when you don't have a border, I, exactly. uh, it's not a matter of if; it's just when. Mr. McCall and, and Congressman Green, y'all both uh, on the national security front. How dangerous is what what this administration is doing has been doing? Where where? Uh, how do you put a figure on what is most likely going to? Um, affect this country for a long time. How, how many more 3,000 deaths are we going to have to take before we uh, finally wake up? And, and, and this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is an American issue. Yeah, and thanks for the question. I was a counterterrorism federal prosecutor in Texas with the border. Uh, I've been dealing with this issue for well over 20 years and uh, chairman of Homeland. But when you have 5 million encounters and 5 million people potentially in this country where that have no legal status, where they're, they're manipulated with trafficking, um, with uh, yeah, the women get trafficked, the, the men go to gangs. Um, Mr. McClintock mentioned the numbers on potential terrorists. When I chaired Homeland, that was the stat I asked every, every week I had my, my classified briefings. How many special interest aliens got in? How many on the terror watch list? Because that was that was the number that um, was the biggest threat, biggest threat. It has a financial toll that's beyond belief. Uh, but then the fentanyls, the human toll on that, 100,000 people dead. That's more than Vietnam over 20 years. 100,000 people, and that number's climbing. It's coming in from China, going through Mexico, and it's going all throughout the United States. When you don't have any accountability and you have a wide open border, you don't know who's coming in, you're really asking for it. Not to mention the crime rate, which we're going to see soar as a result of this because they're not going to have any legal status. So what do you do living in the shadows? I mean, it's, it's, very, it's, not, it's very common sense, as you're pointing out. The dangers, this, this is it such a threat to the United States not only from a criminal standpoint, but a national security standpoint and a drug standpoint. Um, and if we don't get control over this soon, I'm afraid we, it'll be hard to turn back. Well, yeah. we've got a oh, Congressman Green. Sure, sure. I, you know, the, the 1.5 million gotaways, the known number, uh, you can add on to that what uh, Chief Ortiz believes is another 20% where they get our hits at the um, fiber optics in the ground where they know people are coming across but they're not getting their eyes on so they don't count those as gotaways. They're, they actually have another term for it, but he thinks that number is uh, another 20%, so another 300, so 1.8 million. And it's interesting right now, if you turn yourself into Customs and Border Patrol, you're going to get released into the country. They're not deporting. They're not, they allowed the return agreements to expire with the other countries. So, I mean, you're good... So if you're intentionally avoiding CBP, it begs the question, you know, what's the intent? Uh, we talked about the videos earlier of the drug, you know, uh, packs of, of fentanyl coming in, et cetera. What concerns me more is we, when we talk to the sector chiefs uh, and, and we're gathering testimony from them now, we have in, for example, the Del Rio sector, 25 to 35 Chinese nationals aged 25 to 35 with known associations to the PLA being released into the country every day. Now, that's in one sector a day. Uh, 
you think about the Chinese spy balloon that every, pretty much everybody in the country was frustrated that that was allowed to traverse the country. When we get to the bottom of the numbers of people with affiliations with the PLA coming into the United States and just being released into the country, uh, we're going to get to the bottom of it. That's an upcoming uh, uh, planned hearing because of a whistleblower that came to us. Um, I, think, I think people are going to really be shocked at what's really happening at our southern border. But uh, it's our intention to shine a light on that over the coming months. Well, I'll just I'll close with this. Um, <clears throat> again, to try to walk this back, I don't know how you do it. Uh, if, with, with what's going on now, we've five million that we think, but more or less well, before this administration is over with, uh, we'll have 12 to 15 million. Uh, it's like the airline pilot told me off record. <clears throat> he said, we're struggling. We can't catch everybody. That's, that is most likely going to cause another 9-11. And then what will, what will this, what will, what, what will be our reaction? Uh, and I think this is a good bill. It's got some enforcement issues, as, as I mentioned. Um, it's got, Mr. Chairman Cole, I know what the 20 of us did back in January was to get a 72-hour rule where we get, get uh, amendments in, in place early. This violates that. And that's a, that's a problem going forward, a huge problem, because that's not the process that we, uh, I think, is fair to everybody. Again, it's not a Democrat or Republican. It's an American uh, democracy, that, the way it ought to work. But thank each one of you for the time. I'm not going to beat a dead horse anymore. Um, and, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. I appreciate that. A um, couple of things. We're getting ready to recess. So, number one, uh, we have three votes on the floor. Uh, I would advise the witnesses, none of you are excused yet. Your testimony is still here. So immediately after the third vote, we'd request that you return back up here. Obviously, same thing uh, to the members.